Hello everybody and welcome back to We've Got Mail. My name is William Bibiani. I'm a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. My name is Whitney Seibold. I too am a film critic. Uh, you can call me Rockmeister McCool on this podcast. You don't have to. If you, if but you, you may. If you see him on the street, yell it. Uh, and this is... I'll, I'll respond. If oh, I, yeah. If somebody yells it from their car, I'll spin around and, and you know, give me a thumbs up. You won't get too many people turning their heads. Right. <laughs> Mostly just be winning. Uh, anyway, this is We've Got Mail. This is where you control the conversation right here at the Critically Acclaimed Network. Uh, here's how this podcast works. You send us correspondence and we read it on the air. You have a couple of ways of doing that. You can email us. Our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. Or, if you prefer, you can send us a piece of physical mail, paper, or cardboard, or some other thing that you can put in a okay. mailbox. And, it, and we always love getting the letters. Oh, uh, yes. And uh, we don't get so many that we have to parse them out. Yep. We will you, always read them if they're in our per, inbox. Yeah, um, unless it's like obscene or something. Well, I but, suppose you know. so. Like if it I don't was, think we've ever gotten like an obscene Or letter. if it was abstract and we couldn't describe it. It was some kind of Lovecraftian horror. Yeah, it, it's we, like, we got a glowing dodecahedron yeah like this little gem uh, but our P.O. Box is Whitney for those who would uh, like to critically acclaimed network P.O. Box 641565 Los Angeles, California 90064 and we got one I'm gonna let's do it wiggle the paper so you got can got a little bit it. of catching up to do let's, let's jump right in a little bit of ketchup yeah, I like it oh this is this is a long piece of paper. It's a nice, oh my, very nice scroll missive. That's that is legal paper. Oh, this one comes from Paul. Hey, Paul. Yeah, we we know Paul. Um, Paul rocks. Dear Bibbs and Whitney, or suffice it to say, in that milieu. Oh, aren't you cute? Oh, take um, a drink. Uh, I've really been loving your excuse to rewatch the Godzilla movies. The versions I've been getting, uh, mostly on the. Free internet archive mm-hmm. are slightly different from the TV prints I saw as a kid, but there's a difference that has been driving me nuts. Mm. In War of the Gargantuas, oh. excellent movie, War of the Gargantuas, two giant no. Frankenstein's yeah. whale on each other. Sequel to Frankenstein Conquers mm. the World, very strange film. Yeah. In War of the Gargantuas, I swear there was a scene of one of the Gargantuas running down a hill and doing a cannonball into the Pacific. I talked about this at school the next day, and all of my friends saw it too, and we all thought it was hilarious to the point that whenever we were swimming out at the lake, someone would un- invariably yell, War of the Gargantuas! <laughs> run, along the do- run along the dock and imitate that scene. Oh <laughs> but it's been missing from every official VHS, DVD, or online print I've ever seen since the turn of the century. I know we... I know we couldn't have all imagined this, but I've never found any mention of this uh, on the internet anywhere of this scene. Could the famous War of the Gargantuas cannonball be only in a TV print and nowhere else? Mm. Is there anyone else out there who remembers seeing it? Is this this is causing me to doubt my sanity? Uh, changing the subject, I often glom onto films that y'all mention in passing. Turn, turn the paper over. And Bibbs, after hearing you uh, rave about the ninth configuration, mm. I put it on a put it on a, on a dreary day when it was pouring rain constantly. Very strange. The dialogue reminded me of Catch Twenty Two. So thanks for the recommend. Oh, I think configuration's great. That's um yeah, it's a William uh, Peter Blatty. William Peter Blatty directed that one. Yeah, William Peter Blatty is probably best known for writing The Exorcist. He won an Oscar for uh, re- adapting the screenplay, but he also directed movies. He directed mm. uh, the Ninth Configuration, which is really incredibly weird, and it's uh, Stacy Keach plays. Uh, uh, a, a military man who's been put in charge of a mental institution for uh, people with uh, PTSD and other uh, mental illnesses. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> he decides that the best course of action is to 
just let the inmates run the asylum. Like if you mm-hmm. if you want to start an entire production of Hamlet with nothing but dogs, we'll get you the dogs. <laughs> and it's a very strange film. Mm-hmm. It's pretty cool. Uh, but and they says yeah, cheers and thanks for everything, Paul. Thank uh, you, Paul. As for like that weird Mandela effect, or is it Mandela effect? Mandela effect. Yeah. Mandela. Mandela is a, a. No, but it's called the Mandela effect. It's, it's uh, with an e. After Nelson Mandela, I think so. I thought it was Mandala. Um, I will look. I will look that up. So right. while we're while we're looking things up, I always remembered it as Mandala. Uh, <laughs> not cute. Were you setting this up the whole time? Uh, I, I. You know what? Sure. If it makes me seem clever, then yes, I was setting it up the entire time. Uh, I, I I talked recently on a recent podcast about sort of the um, how unreliable your brain is mm. when it comes to memory. Okay, specifically, real fast, uh. the Mandela effect was named uh, by a paranormal researcher named Fiona Broom, who reported having, I'm, I'm quoting Wikipedia here, I'm not going right. to bother, uh, who reported having vivid and detailed memories of news coverage of South African anti-apartheid leader Nelson Mandela dying in the 1980s. Oh, Even weird. though he didn't die for like oh, three okay. decades after. So, yeah, it specifically had to do with a false memory someone had about Nelson about Mandela. About Nelson Mandela. So that's okay. what's the Mandela effect. The Mandela effect. effect. Okay. Yeah. Uh, just, your, your memory doesn't work. Uh, mine doesn't. Oh, uh, no. I, my, I have, I have, a lot I have of weird a, things in my memory. I have a terrible memory, and um, yeah. I, I'm always fond of the movies that kind of address that. Um, maybe one of my, like, one of the most relatable things I've seen in any movie hmm. uh, was in Ingmar Bergman's Fanny and Alexander. Oh, I actually haven't seen that. Uh, there's, oh, yeah, you've told me about it. Yeah, and yeah. I've, I've, I've mentioned the scene before just because I love it so much. Uh, but there's a scene early in the movie where Alexander, the young boy... He's in his mansion. He lives in this kind of rich uh, house mm-hmm. uh, with you know some compassionate parents, and uh, he's just sort of waiting in this room, and it's super decorated, very opulent, beautifully photographed. There's big fancy tables, and there's uh, art and statues, and he's looking at one of the statues, this like Greek kind mm-hmm. of marble statue, and it moves. It like lifts its arm. It un, yeah. un- that happened. Like it moves on the camera. And he freaks out, and he kind of runs from the room, and he never comes back to that. Bergman doesn't, like, mention Mm -hmm. that. And I feel like we as kids have that experience a lot, where we witness or recall with utter clarity something that is supernatural or couldn't possibly have been. Mm. Either we're all experiencing something something supernatural, which I like to think is a possibility. Of course it's a possibility. uh, Just because it's fun. It's very fun. Uh, or there's something about our memories that kind of changes reality around us. Reality isn't reality. Reality, the, you know, the sciences try to get a consensus as to what what is real and what's not, just through sense input. But our senses aren't always that reliable, and mm. our memories aren't that reliable. So it's... There is no scene in War of the Gargantuas, because I just watched this. Mm-hmm. I would have remembered Frankenstein Cannonball. I would have mentioned it. That's not in that movie. Uh, There's a Godzilla Cannonball mm-hmm. in Eber, a Horror of the Deep. 
Yeah. Maybe you conflated that somehow. Uh, I'm uh, reading right here, although I, I can't find an author for this. I, I, theoretically, it might have been Paul. Right. Uh, but I'm reading a, a, an article right here that does describe where the Gargantuas and does uh, describe Gaira sprinting for the coast and cannonballing spectacularly into the ocean. But that's in the middle of the movie, according to this, not the end. Okay. I don't recall this either. I, I remember there was a lot of water. Everyone's kind of like his... Uh, the, the, the quote-unquote evil... Uh, Frankenstein and where the Gargantuas uh, emerged from the ocean uh, and uh, could like regenerate itself by going back into water as it goes into a river at one point. Um, it's possible that it's just one of those things where it's like, um, I'm trying to think of like a, a, a good example. Like it, it's, it's like if someone asks you, hey, tell me a joke. And all of a sudden you can't think of a joke. Yeah. Like the last thing you can do is comprehend how to tell a joke right now or one specific joke that you remember. It might be one of those situations where if you would ask me to describe this movie, maybe I'd remember a cannonball. However, your other question, though, is, is it possible that there is a cut that exists only for TV? The answer is yes. Oh, that actually that, that... does happen quite a bit, mm. um, especially when it was uh, time to do network TV and movies had to be cut for time or occasionally expanded for time. Mm. Uh, what would happen sometimes in some films is uh, they would cut certain elements of the film that were considered um, unsuitable for network television, like language, sex, uh, elaborate violence. Uh, and what would happen is, well, you know, you still need the movie to run a little short so you can run commercials, but sometimes it runs too short. And what they would sometimes do, and it's, you know, it's less common to see it in action now, is they would take deleted scenes or mm -hmm. alternate takes and they would pad out the film with those. I remember uh, the last time I saw one of those, years ago now. Was it Blazing Saddles? No, it was Tin Cup. Oh, curious. All right. Tin Cup, which is a cute movie, actually. Uh, Kevin Costner plays a down-on-his-luck uh, golf pro uh, who falls in love with Renee Russo. She's dating a more successful golf pro played by Don Johnson, and he decides that the only way he can win her heart is to finally make something of himself as a golfer. That's not actually what he, what he wants, and uh, she wants, rather, and it's actually a not altogether bad film about sort of dissecting machismo, but it's a cute film. It's quite good. Mm. Um there's a bit at the end of the movie where they like they go to the U.S. Open, and in the I've seen the movie many times, and because it was like we saw it in theaters and we rented it a lot. My parents are big fans. There is no scene in the official cut of the movie where they're in their camper and they have to like go through a toll booth and the camper is too tall or some shit, and it goes on for like two minutes <laughs> because it's a boring scene and nothing <laughs> happens in it. But when I watch this on, like, WGN or TBS or FX or something in, like, 2001, by God, that scene was in there. All of a sudden, <laughs> that scene's just in the goddamn movie. So it does happen. It's, on, it's not the norm, but it does yeah. happen. Well, and that, that's what happened to me. Uh, one of the times I saw... Actually, this this is a good example, because the first time I ever saw um, Carl, Carl Reiner's film, The Man with Two Brains. Oh, yeah, this is a good Steve example, Martin yeah. film. Um they showed, they cut out some of the nudity and they cut out some of the the ribald jokes, so they had to replace yeah. it with which is quite a lot scenes. of that movie. Actually. Oh yeah, it's, <laughs> it's fair chunks. It's it's, it's it's quite dirty and very enjoyable. By the yeah. way, um, it, it, oh, it's, it's a classic. It's classic. Yeah, and and you know we talk about how old comedies haven't aged well. That one actually has um, mostly. There's like a few joke sequences that are. You couldn't get away with today, but they do know that they're bad. Yeah, like yeah, they're, they're like playing the, into the, the attitude is correct. I'll yeah, say that. Yeah. Um, but. Uh, 
it's it's even sex worker positive. Hmm. Uh, the version I saw had extra scenes in it yeah. that actually. One of them set up a joke that happened in the later final cut of the movie. Yeah, that was not set up, was not set up in the final cut of the movie. Yeah, no, it's weird um, actually. Yeah, there's a, a a whole sequence where um, which probably explain this, what that movie's about. Steve yeah, Martin Steve plays, Martin a, plays a, a brilliant brain surgeon. He's really into brains, uh, and he ends up being attacked by. Uh, or targeted rather, yeah. by a, a, a vicious gold digger played by Kathleen Turner. She's uh, yeah. you know, very... this is like this is like her second movie after Body Heat, and she's already sending up her her character yeah, from so, Body Heat. Brilliant so she's this femme fatale. Uh, he's fallen in love. She's he hits her with his car. He falls in love with her in the process. Has to operate on her brain, but she's just interested in his money and is, yeah. you know having affairs on the side and exploiting him entirely. Yeah. Meanwhile, he meets uh, David Warner, another uh, brain surgeon, while they're on their honeymoon. Mm-hmm. And he has brains in jars, and they're alive. Yeah. His living brains He's in jars. He's a mad scientist in the and, classic uh, vein. And, of course, uh, the Steve Martin character is really... Dr. Hafar is the character's name. How does it uh, spelled? Uh, like it sounds. It's, 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 <laughs> a lot of people mispronounce it. It's spelled like it sounds. Uh, Hafar. Hafar. Um, <laughs> he... Uh, he ends up having a psychic connection with one of the brains. And the mm-hmm. brain is played by Sissy Spacek, who's not credited in the movie. Yeah. Uh, I didn't know that until relatively recently, actually. And he begin and he falls in love with the, the disembodied brain, and he starts carrying this brain around with him and is hiding it from his wife. Mm-hmm. And they there's this whole sequence <clears throat> where they get a country cottage that's not in the final cut of the movie. Yeah. And he brings the brain out to the country cottage, and uh, there's a bit where it's in like on a tabletop. Open near an open window, and there's like a crystal in the window, and the sunbeam yeah. is coming in and burning the brain. Uh-huh. And he's driving home, and he hears the psychic cry for help, and he yeah. races home, and he cools off the brain. And he talks to the brains, like um, you know, recite the alphabet for me. Let's make sure if there's any dangerous. And she says every letter except Z. It's like, oh no, it's like it killed your Z yeah, cells. It's, it's, it's like, well, what's what? Name an animal with a black and white stripe. She says a ebra. <laughs> where does it live it lives in the ooh <laughs> it's like the sun cooked your z cells it's a stupid joke it's a very it, bad it's, joke. but it's amusing but later on in the movie yeah. uh kathleen turner figures out about this brain and puts it in the oven and starts to yeah. cook it and wants to kill the brain yeah and he rescues it and he puts cold water on it and he says count to ten and she says everything but nine yeah. one two three four five six seven eight ten and he wheels around and says you cooked her nines it's really surreal if you don't have the setup where her Z yeah. cells were destroyed. Yeah, so, um, it's very, very strange. I, I, sometimes, everything's sometimes, a little weird about that movie, but I love that movie. Sometimes the extended cuts are better. There's, yeah, a, there's, so. a, there's more jokes in the... Because uh, there's so much to cut out of Blazing Saddles. There's more <laughs> stuff in Blazing Saddles in the uh, TV cut as mm-hmm. well. Um, the yeah. whole, there's like a diving bell scene that's not in... Yeah. yeah. Uh, one of my favorites, this isn't the same thing, but I've, and I've said this before, but it's been a while. My favorite TV edit thing ever was Die Hard 2, Die Harder. Uh-huh. Because um, you can't say yippee Kaye motherfucker on network yeah. television. But everyone knows that's what Bruce Willis says, so mm. you can't just cut the liner scene either. So you have to like... Change it around, and sometimes it a little bit. Yeah, and sometimes they would do this instead of just beeping out some foul language. They would get the sometimes the original actor, but usually just you just get someone to say the word, mm. and so it would be like instead In, of sort of cleaner word. Yeah, like uh, this a- mother a- father over yeah. here. This air, you say airhead instead of asshole. That kind of stuff. There's a great double uh, special feature on the Hot Fuzz 
uh, DVD or Blu-ray, which is all the alternate swearing takes that they did just for like the airplane version. Oh, that's so funny. instead of Simon Pegg yelling, Jesus Christ, mm. he yells, peas and rice. <laughs> but uh, so they couldn't have John McClane say, yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker. So at the end of the movie, they have him say... Yippee ki Mr. Falcon, which sounds very cool until you realize that no one There's... in the movie is named Mr. Falcon mm. at all. So what they did was they added in an earlier scene where all of like the bad guys are like setting up their bad guy equipment in like this disused <laughs> church or something. You just hear in the background someone say, hey, everything's ready, Mr. Falcon. That's it. <laughs> We've covered it. We've, I love we've it. put a band-aid I on that it. wound. Uh... <laughs> Bless him. Like I've I've had it with these uh, these monkey fighting snakes on this Monday through Friday plane. That's, Perfect. That's the famous one. Classic. Um, yeah, I I always I didn't like the beeping. I always liked when they tried to put in the fake swear words. Yeah. Like uh, try watching Scarface at some point with like all of these weird alternate versions of it. Uh, here's an email. We're moving back to emails. That yes. was our letter. Yeah. So here's a le- uh, an email from Luke. It says, uh, hey, "Luke, good afternoon, Mr. Bibbs and Rockmeister." As the presence of video rental stores began to dwindle, I thought to myself, people are going to miss these pretty soon. To a degree at which we've, I feel like we've hit that point in society. Their entire advertisements and jokes and comedies and sitcoms about how there are so many options on streaming services that people spent hours just picking something to watch. Yeah. Uh, but there were stories going into... Uh, but when there were stories going into, it kind of uh, took on people a mental time clock to find something and get out of them. A video store. Yeah, you wanted to get home. To drive home to watch it. Yeah. Having spent many hours just browsing myself, I have developed a method to help me not waste time whenever I'm not sure what to watch. Please tell us. This is going to be this useful. Is, this is um, this could be a huge life hack, everybody. Get, get your pen and paper out, okay? Hmm. Maybe mark the time code if you don't have the time. All right. Yeah. I have written down most of the streaming services I have access to, as well as, quote, physical media, and numbered them. I personally have eight. Mm-hmm. Uh, then I leave it up to what I call the algorithm of the universe, where I roll an eight-sided die, go to that service, and just go to my watch list and click play on the first movie that yeah. piques my interest even a little. This accounts for not just being in the mood for certain movies due to subject matter or length. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very fun. It has saved me a lot of time over the past couple of years. Yeah, just mm. roll the die. Hit play. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, or, here's a good idea. Listen to us. <laughs> We got pretty good taste, right? Yeah, you, you more than me, I'd say. No, but, uh, <laughs> that's not true. Rather famously not true, actually. <laughs> um, this has also led to me discovering a movie I'd never heard of. Sometimes, oh. sometimes it's easier to do in rental stores as well as pre-internet. Mm. That blows my mind just to break it down. Over on Tubi, may it forever be strange, uh, complete with a studio watermark in the corner is a movie called Red Sun from 1971. Hmm. A spaghetti western directed by Terrence Young, Dr. No from Russia with Love, sure. and a huge actors from all over, Charles Bronson, Alan DeLon, Toshiro motherfucking Mifune, and Ursula Andress. Oh, I've heard of this film. I actually never watched um, it, but I've heard of it. Yeah. Short version, it's about a cowboy and a samurai begrudgingly teaming up and slowly becoming friends while they hunt down the same man for revenge. And at the end, you're friends. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Nothing brings you, brings two two people together better than revenge murder. Yeah. Uh, aside from not that terrible, be but, the tagline for a lot of movies. Yes. Yeah. And aside from not terrible but not great Native American stuff, yeah. it's a good movie. It boggles my mind that I made it into my forties never hearing of this, but back in high school I regularly watched movies of all those actors. I don't really have any questions for you two, but I wanted to share <laughs> these two points uh, in the hopes of 
helping people with a way to uh, to stop spending so much time just browsing as well as spread the word on Red Sun. Uh, I forget. I, I was on a podcast. I might have been with us. It might have been something else. I do so many podcasts. But we were talking about video stores and mm-hmm. how there was definitely a different mentality to renting a movie from a video store mm. than there is uh, now. And when you're going on streaming, because when you're on streaming, you're looking for the right thing to watch and you have all the time in the world and you tend to take all the time in the world yeah. to the extent that after a while you give up and just watch another old episode of murder. She wrote or something mm. rather than watch anything new, but there is a definitely different mentality to when you have to leave the house, mm. go to a store Maybe you're looking for the thing, you one particular thing. And if they have it, you rent that. Yeah. But if they don't, you made the trip. Mm. You're going to rent something. And now you're going hunting. And you're trying to find something to watch. And you're more likely to leave with a movie that you had been putting off watching for a long time. Or that you never heard of. You're just going to give a chance to. Yeah, you're yeah. more likely to experiment than you are... And then if you can't think of something new to watch right now and you're going to go yeah. for immediate comfort because it's all available to well, you. And I think that, that that left more room for people to want to explore cinema. Yeah. I, I think um, actual physical geography of a store mm. allows you to ponder things like genre a little bit better. Yeah, am I in a horror mood tonight? Am and, I in a classics and you, mood? And you walk over into this part of the store. And the, yeah. depending on the store, different parts of the store might have different kind of moods about them and that can affect mm-hmm. what you rent. Uh, also taxonomy on every single streaming service, mm-hmm. even the ones I like yeah. is horrendous. Oh, it's just, oh. I don't know who invented that and why the other streaming services are uh, imitating it. I only assume it's because they get some sort of points or, you know, ratings mm-hmm. by the amount of time people spend on the service, so they are making things deliberately hard to find. Yeah. Uh, why aren't... Why can't you search through a streaming service alphabetically? That should why be can't you baseline. Through, why can't you search through by year? Yeah. Uh, that's really frustrating. Why can't you just get a fucking master list mm-hmm. without those little pictures or boxes, uh-huh. just a list of what's on the service. And there are websites you know, t- that offer t- t- that, title, but they're not official. They're not like th- from They're the not actual... official, and those are also hard to navigate. Yeah. Because they're also, sometimes they're organized by what's leaving and what's staying. Mm-hmm. Who cares what's leaving, what's staying? Just give me a master list of what's on the service right now. I'll look through the titles. They do uh, <laughs> They do research on these things, and I'm sure mm-hmm. there, there's actual like research evidence that whatever people say, what they actually do when they're browsing might be slightly different. That's true for a lot of anthropological studies. What yeah. you say you do and what you actually do doesn't always sync up. Sometimes your idea is of yourself is a little bit more idealized. Yeah. Uh, so listen, I'm sure I, I, I've been an easy mark for an algorithm at some point and they've done their work, but there comes a time where I'm not just idly looking for something, anything to watch. Mm. And I realize that as a professional film critic, that might happen a little bit more often to me than some other people. But I'm pretty sure for everybody, there's going to come a time when they just want to find a thing or a very specific type of thing or a thing featuring by a certain director or a certain actor. And you want to be able to just find that thing. There are basic functionalities that certain websites and streaming services should have. Mm -hmm. And they should be easy to find and they should be available. Alphabetical order, reverse alphabetical order, mm-hmm. 
Everything from a certain filmmaker, everything from a certain actor. These are not hard hashtags to fit in there. Yeah, yeah. The, Specific subgenres in alphabetical order for crying out loud. In order of release and, date. And in an opposite order of release date. And you can search through these things. Yeah. And you can even search through by like actor. But yeah. And some and some and some streaming services have better searches than others. Yeah. Some of them are abysmal though. Most of them are abysmal. Yeah. Uh, I, I feel like Netflix kind of started the design and everybody else imitated them. Uh, you, uh, like I said, um, Night Flight is, mm. I think, maybe one of the better organized ones because they have their... Because they're very specifically curated. Mm. So it's like, here's the something weird video section. Mm. It's like, if you know something weird video, they're like a specialty right. uh, trash movie outlet. Yeah. Uh, I want to watch a trashy movie. I go to the something weird section. Yeah, And it's so specially curated, you only have like maybe 15... Something yeah. weird videos. And Criterion's actually pretty good as well. You mm. can pick by uh, decade oh, yeah. or, I, or region. I, I appreciate or, yeah. when they sort of curate playlists, but That's that should nice. be like something at the top, and then the full list should be underneath. You that. can get the full list on Criterion. Oh, can you? You can. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't remember. I couldn't like okay. tell you to do it now, but I've gotten the full list on Criterion just everything. They have like little sliders or whatever like that mm. that are like... 1950s, or at least they did last time no. I looked. Like they had like, movies in the 1950s. You can put that in there. You know, movies from a certain country or whatever. But I, that I was hate, possible. I hate the splash of rectangles. It's just yeah. not. And, I and feel random. Like... They're just random shit. And sometimes so they I, move them. Yeah. Like I was, I have like, you know, on Hulu, there's a couple of TV shows I watch semi regularly. And when there's a new episode, boom, there's a new Bob's Burgers. Thank you. All right. And it's right there. It's like the third thing down or the fourth thing down. Sometimes that just vanishes for no fucking reason, yeah, and I'm like, I'm not taking your again, fucking yeah. bait, Hulu. I'm not gonna watch them, whatever you want me to watch today. Yeah, I don't yeah. care if you did get the rights so, to football. So when you go into a video store, guess what? It's all alphabetical by genre. Mm-hmm. Uh, if it's a pretty well curated video store like Cinephile up the mm-hmm. street, they have like a director's wall. It's curated by director. Yeah, uh, and and that leads to some problems too because sometimes your first thought isn't this director has a section. Yeah. My first thought is, oh, I'm, I want to see a David Cronenberg movie. I'm going to go into the horror section. Hey, where's David Cronenberg? It's over here. Yes, yeah. But then so, there's someone asks. So but it's yeah, easy. If, if you're you in know, a store though, it if, yeah, it's like and and. Also, the I don't care how sophisticated the algorithm ever gets, mm-hmm. it's never going to be, be a real person yeah. uh, who has experience watching these movies and can recommend something to you, can recommend yeah. something weird that you've never heard of. Yeah, because uh, the algorithm... Recommend something weird that I've never heard of mm-hmm. is a lot harder than, hey, can you recommend me a motorcycle movie from the 90s? Yeah. Like, okay, here's Harley Davidson and the Marlboro Man. Boom. But if you want, like, just someone's taste, yeah, if you want to be exposed to that, that is not something Netflix is going to do. Remember when they had that thing on Netflix where, like, you would answer some questions and Netflix would recommend a movie to you? And uh, they'd have, like, a voice and it would claim to be, like, a person? And it was oh, never good. Oh, they tried good. that for a little bit? It yeah. was embarrassing. Yeah. It was embarrassing. Mm-hmm. That their their attempt to replicate the video store experience by having you answer a whole bunch of questions or say you like this movie more than this movie. And then they would recommend the most obvious, f- Hey, have you ever seen ghostbusters? Mm. Yes. <laughs> I don't need you to recommend one of, one of the most popular movies of all time. I need you, I need a recommendation for something I don't know about. That's what the video mm. store clerk experience is about. God. Yeah, if you're going to recommend me a popular movie, make something that's, like, so many people don't really talk about it too much anymore. Yeah. Like, have you seen Dangerous Liaisons? It's a pretty yeah. well-known movie, but I haven't seen it. It's been a while since yeah. that's been around and people regularly don't talk, talk about it. Yeah, exactly. That so, yeah. This would be a good opportunity for you to finally watch Dangerous Liaisons. Bada bing. Thank you. Hmm. Anyway. 
Anyway, great topic conversation. Thank you so much for writing in. Uh, and uh, yeah, honestly, this is something I forget as well. I have a watch list on some of these things. I save things for later, and then I forget to go back to it. Yeah. So just remember, yeah. hey, go back to it. Pick a thing. Boom. Um, Makes sense. For a long time, uh, my wife and I were uh, trying to hold back from buying videos. Sure. Because we had too many. Mm-hmm. We've actually done a call. We've kind of like sold off a lot of our video collection just because we mm-hmm. had too many. It's like we're, I what, did that we once and make... I regretted it ever since because things went out of print. <laughs> well, that, well, that's the issue now. Yeah, like we we would go into like video stores back when they were common and they were selling off some of their overstock. Uh, and we great. and yeah, and it's like oh, three... it was tragic, but it was good yeah, for me like, personally. You know, no, I mean no, I mean just they were selling off rental copies. Oh, was I was talking about like when Hollywood drugs. Video was going out of business and you can get a Criterion collection that's like five hundred dollars on eBay for eight bucks because they didn't know what. They yeah. had. But, that's what I'm talking about. Th- that was a pretty glorious time as well. It's but sad, yeah. but glorious. But yeah, they, the, your, your local blockbuster would get 80 copies of Down With Love, and one month later, they don't need 80 yeah, copies. Yeah, so they just sell them. They, they would sell, sell them for like, yeah, like yeah. five or six bucks. And, yeah. Uh, so yeah, we do that. It's like, oh, I kind of like that movie. I'll buy it. And we put it up on our shelf. And like 20 years later, it's like we watched that once. We don't need it anymore. There's certain things so that I probably actually, safe bet I'm not going Sometimes gonna... it's just fucking junk and you can get it out the door. There's, uh, I own... Don't feel bad about that. When you're when you're a film critic, sometimes you just accumulate films. Yeah. Sometimes it's something you had to write about you never anticipated, but you figured, you know, it's cheaper to buy it today to because, it, yeah. yeah, or whatever reason, or, you know, you, you just get these things. I own two copies of Daddy's Home. I don't know why I own one copy of Daddy's Home. You know what you can what do I with do that, know yeah. is that was the first movie we watched when we moved into this apartment. Okay. Because it was the only movie I had brought into the apartment so far. We had a bed, a TV, and Daddy's Home. Here's it a... was one of the worst nights of my oh life. Oh my god. Here's my recommendation. Play Skeet. Uh, just shoot those things. Throw them in the air and shoot them out of the sky. Uh, you don't need two copies of Daddy's Home. But well, at least one. At least I can shoot Skeet with one Daddy's Home. Because of the streaming services and the caprices of what goes in and out of print, uh, yeah, for a long time we were very careful. We'd only buy, like, Criterion Blu-ray. Something sure. really... Something classy. Something yeah, to keep. Something a little bit more Tiffany. And um, yeah. now we're going back to, if you like it, get it. Yeah, we're like go to we, go we to a need to curate go, go, to, go and, to Hollywood, yeah. go into a maybe music, you know, yeah. find the used video if you kind of like that movie, put it back on your shelf again. Yeah, because uh, we're running out of opportunities to do that, and no. if we don't, if we, I realize that the economy is in the toilet, and it has been for mm. a while, and it's getting better in some regards, but it doesn't mean we all have more cash on hand. Mm. So we're all being frugal. Not I, everyone has disposable income, but if you have the opportunity, even just once in a while. To support physical media, do so because if no one buys it, they're not going to bother anymore. Hmm. So the get even if it's like a, a a used place, whatever. Just if you can afford to get a DVD, get a DVD. Yeah. It helps. If you can't, you can't. That's totally fair. It yeah. is what it is. But like if you can afford to invest in DVDs and not just Tiffany Criterions, but any of them, like from hmm. the studios that think maybe now is the time to give up on physical media altogether, now is a good time. Yeah. All right. uh, here, here's a letter from Dr. Nova. Hi, Dr. Nova. We're here for Dr. Nova from time to time. Uh, hi, babes and Rockmeister. I am Rockmeister. Um, I have a good time. I have had a good time taking a break from movies and mm. only watching one or two a week is good. Okay. Yeah, so you, you can. That's probably you can about normal, it, I think. Yeah. Most people, not everyone's a huge movie fan and they yeah. only watch a, a few every uh, once in a while. However, still following uh, news, here is my question. Mm. Do you think Hollywood mm. will not be around in its current form in 20 years? Mm. No one is getting paid, and studios don't care. The big studios are run by billionaires who don't care about what they're making. 
They only care about money to the point of deleting TV shows and not making them available. Well, people mm. like you care about uh, care about that. I feel like no one will notice until it gets into the way they make content. Mm. Studios want AI to make movies and TV so they can make as much money in the short term before the house gets blown away. Yeah. Streaming used to be that, and uh, and now that it, that's AI, no large American studio is off this train, and they're all eating each other for scraps. So what will happen next? Also, which studio slash country will rise from the ashes, Dr. Nova? Uh, uh, that's an excellent question. Yeah. Uh, the film industry has always been in flux. Mm. The way it is now is very different than the way it was 20 years ago, from 40 years ago, 60 years ago, 80 years ago, 100 years ago, and beyond. Yeah. Um, I do feel like we're in a state of contraction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and actually right. have been for a bit. Like the, the blockbusters have gotten bigger and everything else has shrunk. More, mm-hmm. more resources are going into fewer films. And and there was a brief period where streaming services were so desperate to get original material mm-hmm. that they would throw money at interesting filmmakers and smaller films and pick up lots of cheaper films. And I think they're at the point now where they realize that that's not necessarily the best financial investment yeah. for them, speaking well, purely from those terms. And so that's contracting now, too. Yeah. Uh the, the model changed in the streaming era pretty quick Huge. and everybody got on super fast. And yeah. the way streaming works is, uh, and you can tell this is the way it works because they're not releasing their numbers mm-hmm. and they're not going to, mm-hmm. because to do so would cause the industry to collapse. Yep. Uh, because I, I'm now 100% convinced that the numbers are rock bottom they're across the board, across good. every single streaming service, that they're yeah. just not as good as they've said they and, are. And if you're and, not uh, following along, that's, this is one of the key things about the strikes, mm-hmm. is that streaming has changed the industry immensely, and the various guilds are still operating under agreements that were made before streaming mm-hmm. took such a huge part of sort of the whole financial yeah. uh, so, uh, 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 pizza. So uh, people now want the deals that they had prior to streaming deals mm-hmm. that apply to home video network television basic cable to apply to them now thus getting a more fair deal for the work that they have actually put in and studios are like we don't want to do that and one of the things the studios just adamantly refuse to do is announce exactly what their streaming numbers are occasionally they'll release a press release when they think they can claim something is doing really really yeah. well but usually they're Dead silent. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and so and Netflix started this. They, yeah, they, 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 they didn't be, they didn't didn't have to play by the rules of the Nielsen ratings, mm-hmm. so they just didn't release their numbers. Yeah. And so what happened was, they're not making money from getting new subscribers to pay for their service to see all these things. Mm-hmm. That, that plateaus after a while. That, yeah. yeah, like you can only get so many, there's only yeah. so many hours of entertainment you can consume. This is one of the reasons why they're trying to prevent people from sharing the same account. They think mm. they can get more people to subscribe, yeah, yeah. not realizing that if you could have, you probably would have, and that's probably about all you're going to get Netflix. Yeah. Um, so the way they were making money was through stock. They yeah. weren't getting money from the subscribers. That didn't matter. It didn't yeah. matter if these films were being seen. What they had to do is pour all of this money and all this uh, you know, budget into just sort of filling their coffers with things that looked good on paper. Yeah, we, we look like lo- a real studio. Yeah, we, we did The Irishman. We Yeah, we have this big uh, prestige movie. We have this big expensive film, and that looks good to shareholders. Yeah. Uh, oh, your company must have value if you have all these movies. We're mm-hmm. going to all... And the stock of your company goes up. Yeah. They spend all this money on stock buybacks. They get really, really wealthy. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter 
if people are even seeing anything. So if they release those numbers, one of two things is going to happen. Either they're, they are doing really well, people are watching all of these things, and they owe the artists a ton of money, yeah, which, is, which they would consider bad. Or they reveal that the Emperor has no clothes, and that, well, surely people are watching some things, mostly it's not doing very good, and all they have really done is they have removed one of the most important money-making parts of the distribution system, the home video, prior to streaming, made that unprofitable, whereas it used to be enormously profitable because they went all in on streaming, mm. killed that dead, killed cable, and basically killed the entire industry. And that will also be bad for them because they will have revealed that they were short-sighted and they ruined everything yeah, so. and they should be fired. They'll probably well, all be rich, but they'll still be fired. No, what's gonna? They're they're gonna get away with their money. Of course, no, they are. nobody's gonna lose all their cash. None of the rich no, people they, are gonna lose all their cash. The their writers, jobs, are maybe, young. but not their cash. My, yeah. uh, the saddest part of all of this is that the strikers mm. are gonna get nothing at the end of this, regardless. Oh, I don't. I uh, hope that's not the case. But uh, I'm not that cynical. But what I think is gonna happen is the numbers are gonna leak. And these companies are going to lose all of their stock value. Mm -hmm. They're going to bottom out. A lot of hundred-year-old companies are going to go out of business. And I think they've got and, a uh, timeline on that too. Because you remember one of the things that because uh, they release uh, some of the like uh, what the uh, American Motion Picture Trade I forget what the AMPTP stands for exactly, but mm. um, the organization that is negotiating with the Writers Guild and the Screen Actors Guild, the, the pro Producers Guild, the, basically producers, not the guild, but producers, yeah, pro uh, yeah. studios, not the PGA, but yeah. Yeah, a, a group of collective <laughs> studios and streamers. Um, they, you know, the Writers Guild and the Actors Guild, they asked for these things, and the it, finally they had a counter offer, and the counter offer was mostly ridiculous, and one of the things was this. Okay, you want to see your streaming numbers so you can see that you're getting paid uh, fairly. And here's what we're going to do. And I might be getting this slightly wrong. It's easy mm -hmm. to find this. Uh, we will show the streaming numbers to selected representatives of your union. Single digits, basically. Yeah, like two, two yeah. or three people get to come in yeah. and to look the, at the numbers. A, a black room and look yeah. at this piece of paper. And you're not allowed to reveal those numbers to anyone, and you're not allowed to negotiate or barter on those numbers for like six years. Yeah. So for yeah. six years, you can look at them, but only a couple of people can. No one else can know. And in six years, then we can renegotiate mm. based on those numbers, which tells me that they think the industry is going to bottom out in six years. Yeah, yeah. The, the, That's the, not a good the, sign. <laughs> That's not no, a good he, sign here's at the thing. all. The industry bottoms out from time to time. It does. Uh, As before, will again. Uh, and they're, they're working on a... Cleopatra movie right now, right? With oh, they Gal, always Gal Gadot. Um, they they they've been working on a Cleopatra movie for like the last thirty years. There was Angelina Jolie was going to do oh, okay. it. Various people were going to do. Oh, it. I, I thought it was like inevitable now. Like they're actually shooting. Uh, it, but, I don't um, know. I didn't know if there was act that actually went into production, but it was in development. I know that. Yeah. yeah. Um, I love that they're trying that at this particular juncture in uh -huh. uh, film history because with no the, irony whatsoever. In, yeah, in the early sixties. <clears throat> Hollywood was trying to draw people into theaters by making these gigantic, expensive mm -hmm. historical epics. And Cleopatra, the one with Liz Taylor, uh, mm -hmm. was notoriously so expensive to make, and mm -hmm. it bombed so hard, it, like, kind of, uh, like... Killed that part yeah, of the of, industry. kind of hurt, hurt a big part of the industry. But if you look at what happened in the late 60s... Mm -hmm a lot of interesting smaller filmmakers started to arise. Easy Rider cost nothing and made a fortune, and mm -hmm. Hollywood noticed, oh wait, we do not have to spend a fortune uh -oh. to get people into theaters, you just have to make it seem like an event. Uh, uh, Which is no, well, it's not, not even that, it's well, just, we, we need to find... Easy. 
interesting voices. Well, that's my point. We need to find interesting artists. We mm-hmm. need to f- have uh, like a new generation enter the this uh, entertainment landscape and that's kind of my point. Shake things up a little bit. It's not yeah. well. People will go to see the things get shaken up. Is my mm-hmm. point? Like, oh, this movie is doing something new yeah. or interesting. It feels like the thing we gotta go see. If you don't make it seem like people have to go see your movie. There's a decent chance people won't go see your movie. Well, Barbenheimer I'm, was an event. I'm not concerned with how the studios are marketing this. I'm saying that well, I'm just talking the, about how, the, the what, idea what of... What the theaters on mass. Well, I'm not talking about on mass. I'm just I talking am. about what the landscape is going to look like. Okay. And uh, when there's no Hollywood machine in the way, mm-hmm. it doesn't really matter who how many people are going to see these things, more interesting art is going to come up out of this. Because the yeah. interesting art is always there. True. It's just not getting, you know, uh, getting talked about and it's not being made on a mass scale. That's what I'm um, talking about. This will become more viable. Yeah. It, and it's, um, so I think what's going to happen here is the industry will bottom out mm-hmm. within six years. I'll, I'll, At least as we yeah. know it, I would be surprised yeah. if we don't hit like a major low plateau. Yeah. I'm, I'm willing to bet a lot of the streaming services are going to go away. I think the specialties are going to stay. Yeah, I think it's probably <clears throat> safe to say that the ones mm-hmm. that have a niche and are working within that niche, we're not getting too big for our britches. We're mm-hmm. not pretending we're more than we are. We're shutter. Okay, yeah. Shutter is an example of something Shutter's that as gonna, long as Shutter's safe. as long uh, as their parent company doesn't get like cold feet and thinks Shutter needs to be making a billion dollars, mm-hmm. as long as they acknowledge Shutter is reasonably affordable, it hits a target demographic really, really hard. It helps drive loyal, that part of the loyal demographic very too, loyal. Yeah. As long as we are comfortable making these numbers, there's no reason to fuck it up. Mm-hmm. The problem is. People think, oh, the problem with this thing that I acquired, I just bought this studio, is that it's not making a billion dollars. The problem with Star Trek is it's not making a billion dollars. We have to fix it. You have to understand what you've got and what it does. Mm. And a lot of people are buying studios, whole studios, and just strip mining it for parts. It's happening at Warner Brothers. I suspect that before the end of the decade, we're going to have fewer studios. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Maybe not all of them gone, but I would not be surprised if, like, I don't know, just Universal and Paramount merged. Like, that wouldn't shock me. I don't know if that would even be, like, depending on who's running the Justice Department, that might not even be legal. But I would not be shocked if that combines, and then all of a sudden, Paramount Plus and Peacock is actually a pretty good streaming service rather than two crappy ones. Well, I think think the only ones that are going to survive this Mm. great stream war, Netflix is going to die. I think even you Disney, really think Netflix is going to die. I think Netflix is going to die, and, gonna I, and I think okay. I, wish, I think it's not about blockbusters. Yeah, yeah. Blockbuster yeah. died too, and it's Netflix true. is right. going to go that you're same right. way. Right. I think Disney Plus is going to die. Mm-hmm. They have Marvel and, and Star oh, yeah. Wars. How many times can you watch those goddamn things? Uh, well, uh, <laughs> quite a few. But I actually agree, and I think Disney is realizing that licensing their stuff out mm. is it's more lucrative be, yeah, it's than just make getting them a lot more money. Yeah, I agree. So. With that. Um, yeah. I feel like the the cheaper or even the free stations, mm-hmm. Tubi, like Pluto and Tubi, like those are going to stick around. Those are probably going to be fine because they're ad based. Mm-hmm. Same with like Freevee. Those things are going to live. Mm-hmm. Amazon uh, will probably be okay. Amazon it and doesn't Apple. need. I was going to say Amazon yeah. and Apple are going to be fine because they're part of bigger companies that aren't just entertainment studios. Yeah, their their streaming services don't have to make all their money. They're just yeah. there to drive more people to the rest of the stuff that they do. Yeah. 
So, uh, so yeah, I think Amazon and Apple are going to survive, mm. and the little ones are going to survive, and the, and the specialties are going to survive. So Criterion's going to be okay. I hope because because it's fil- always a fil- risk. Filmstruck got struck down. Yeah, um, but it got struck down because of Warner Brothers, not because of Criterion. When that Criterion's now working more on its own auspices, that's true. So yeah. fingers crossed, but we'll right, see. So how it I, goes. I hope Criterion stays because that's a great God, that a great suck. catalog. That'd be a shame. Uh, and yeah, people would riot. If, if Criterion, if Criterion just people, people, yeah. would, people would would kickstart. People would do anything they could mm. to keep Criterion alive. And there's a few other smaller yeah, studios, like, whatever like, that people yeah. might do that for. But mostly, yeah, yeah and, we're going to see. Uh, you're right, a contraction. And, and, and I've always carried the torch for Ovid, yep. for Shutter, and for Night Flight. Like those sure. are those are some excellent streaming mm-hmm. services that are small enough that they can yeah. just operate on their own capital. And I think certain niche DVD distributors like. Shout vinegar syndrome, yeah. shout factory. Yeah, yeah and like, yeah, sure. we're seeing some of them uh, contract as well. But I think as long as again they're working within their means, they know mm. we can't sell more than this many copies well, uh, of Man's Best Friend on 4K. So what, what we're what we're <laughs> so talking we're... about is a future. Mm. Without big studios, mm. where Shout Factory is alive, yeah. and that's a future I'm looking forward to. Yeah, it's bleak because a lot of people are going to lose their jobs in this yeah. this shift. Yeah, that's true. I don't work in the industry, and I, I can well, only... not that side. Not that side of it. Yeah. But I, I understand things are going to change dramatically. A lot of hard decisions are going to be made, and a lot of people are going to lose their jobs. Mm. Uh, budgets are going to change. The types of films that we see are going to change. Yep. And I feel like we're, in terms of the kind of art we're about to get... Mm-hmm. There's actually some things to be excited about, at the very least. I think people will always make art. And mm. cinematic art in various forms, you know, it's yeah. evolving, it's always changing. Uh, I do think there's always a place for it. Uh, but I, I think you're right, I think it is going to change dramatically, and I think it, it, I don't think it'll be, like, unrecognizable, but it'll be, there'll be some pretty major shifts uh, in our future. That being said, I'm reminded of an episode of The Simpsons, where uh, Principal Skinner was in the cafeteria, and talking about something, and they, like, Miss Kabapa was like, but what about the kids' future? And he yells, these kids have no future! And then all the kids go, <gasps> and then he says, prove me wrong, kids! <laughs> prove me wrong! And that's where I'm at right now. We might not have a future of this industry working the way it works now. Uh-huh. Prove me wrong! For, yeah, I, I will be um, very interested to be proven wrong. I'm not. I'm not like going to be mad if this doesn't like go this way. Mm. This is just where it seems like it's going. It's, yeah, that, it's my prediction, and yeah. I'll, I'll happily eat my words if I'm incorrect. Yeah, maybe the James Gunn <laughs> Superman shit that he's doing is mm. actually going to take off and save the industry. I don't know. Who the hell can say? Yeah. Who the hell can say? Yeah, but it, um, it's not looking hopeful. I'll believe that mm-hmm. Superman movie exists when I watch it. Yeah, but uh, you never know. You never may, know what's going to happen. Yeah, maybe it'll maybe it'll move the world to tears. Maybe I'll love it. Maybe mm. it'll change everything. I think a world in which a movie like Oppenheimer can make almost a billion dollars, regardless mm. of the fact that it's like a tour driven or whatever, uh, is a world where there's some hope that different kinds of movies can do well. Well, the, what so I think yeah, we're, 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 we're living in an interesting time in terms of the yeah, movies people will pay to go see. A, a lot of the bigger ones that we've been living through for the last decade, all those, mm. the Marvels and all the rest. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not the, driving the conversation. They're not driving right the conversation as nearly as much as they used to, and I'm no. glad for that because yeah. I hated that conversation. It's got uh, repetitive, that's for sure. And 
people are turning away. And the only reason why so many studios have been talking about AI, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we're going to use AI to sort of create stories and then we'll have writers mm-hmm. punch up the AI. First of all, yes, it's a cost-saving measure and it's really cynical. But I think the only reason they're talking about that is because a lot of the entertainment that's been the most popular has been really samey. Yeah. And they're following formulas to the point where you can actually train a computer to write it. Mm-hmm. It actually seems viable because the shit we've been consuming all tastes the same. And that's so... This is the thing about... Frankly, speaking of someone who's grown up here, uh-huh. America. Yeah. But uh, the American economy as well. Uh, Americans' uh, approach on like you know climate change. We are incredibly short-sighted. Yeah. We are only concerned about what's happening now and maybe what's happening tomorrow. Two tomorrows from now, the day after tomorrow, Roland Emmerich was right. We are not paying attention. We don't care. We think we'll solve it later. Mm. Uh, there are definite... Uh, uh, the whole thing with AI is you're thinking to yourself, oh, we're following a formula. Then we can just make this formula mm. and it will be easy. And what you're not taking into consideration is that people get tired of a formula mm. and then you have to come up with something new. Then you have to innovate. I would, uh, and, a, and an algorithm isn't designed to innovate. Yeah, yeah. I, I would encourage everybody to watch Robert Altman's film, The Player, mm-hmm. because there's an excellent it's scene. scene. It's, it's quoted a lot uh, where uh, a bunch of studio executives, it's a Hollywood movie. Yeah, it's a, studio it's a satire movie. Yeah, uh, are in a, a room together and uh, one of them says, we can eliminate writers from this formula. We don't need writers. Yeah. It's like, what are you talking about? Pick up a newspaper, because they're yeah. 92, there's newspapers. Yeah. Uh, read me a headline, I'll give you a story. I'm not a writer, I'll just give you a story, we can make that movie. Yeah. Hire talented, famous actors to just sort of maybe even improvise, we don't need a script, Yeah. and we can make a million dollars. And he does it a couple times. Like, he comes up with a, a, a treatment based on a headline. Yeah, and they're hackneyed, mm. shitty treatments, yeah, but, but enough people at the table are going, interesting. Yeah. Because they think... Everyone, here's the thing about Hollywood. Mm. Everyone thinks they're a writer. <laughs> Everyone thinks writing is the easiest thing to do. And that's true. Everyone thinks that the writer is the person who doesn't need... The, anyone could be the writer. Not realizing that that's proven untrue every day. But anyway, we should move on. This has been a good conversation. Yeah. We'll see how it goes. Anyway, uh, here's a letter from Sean. Hello, Sean. Hi, Sean. Uh, hi, I just finished your Iron List episode of the best box office bombs. Yes. Uh, very interesting episode. I had never heard of Dutch. So, which which <laughs> you, you recommended. I, I like Yay! that movie, too. Um, so I gave it a watch. Very strange movie. What yep. was up with the scene transition where he's making dinner in the kitchen at the house and all of a sudden they're at a restaurant eating what he was preparing? Overall, it definitely could not have been made today, but I found it entertainment and compelling enough to watch to the end. Uh, oh, well, I'm glad you watched the whole thing. Yeah, uh, yeah. that means it must have been, yeah. been okay, yeah. Uh, I, also, I was surprised you didn't include John Carter. That was a huge bomb. Mm-hmm. Most people blamed it on marketing since it removed the Of Mars part from the original book title. Didn't help. Anyway, I love the podcast, and I wonder if you'll bring back Cancel Too Soon to talk about Gotham Knight. Thank you so much, Sean. Uh to answer the last part last, Cancel Too Soon, we are turning into more of like a uh, an occasional thing. Mm. It was on hiatus for longer than either of us liked, and so we're going to bring back an episode once in a while to keep it still alive. It's still very dear to our hearts. Uh, and to answer the first part about Dutch, there's a sequence in Dutch, if you've never seen it, where uh, Ed O'Neill, and I can't remember who plays the mom in that one, but he's dating uh, Ethan Embry's mom. And the plot is he's got to take Ethan Embry, who's been kind of brainwashed by his dad to hate his own mother, on a road trip. And over the course of the road trip, they're going to bond, but they hate each other. They fight, literally and figuratively. 
And, it's, and, and it's a road trip, so everything goes yeah. wrong. And, yeah, yeah, like it, stuff is stolen. And they it's have a to slightly get, yeah. darker. It, John Hughes wrote it. It's a slightly darker version of a lot of things John Hughes has done before, and stuff like National Lampoon's Vacation, mm-hmm. Planes, Trains, Automobiles, Uncle Buck. Um, I, I'll say this, however daring, I like Dutch way better than I like Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. Um, I would probably rather watch Dutch. Yeah, but I like Planes, Trains, and Automobiles a lot, and right. I get why. It's, I think John Candy should have been Oscar nominated for that movie. Okay. Um, there's a scene in the beginning of Dutch, and it, I love that you picked up on this because it is a fun editing joke, uh, where uh, Ed O'Neill is telling Ethan Embry's mom uh, that, uh, listen, the, the kid's on his own, I can drive over there, I can take care of the kid. And while he's doing this, he is preparing dinner for her. And he's like chopping vegetables, and he's chopping up chicken, and he's putting it, at the end of the scene, he puts it all in a bowl, and then we do a hard cut to dinner being served mm. in a restaurant. And the joke is, the food he made sucked, so they went to a restaurant instead. Yes. It's a fun editing joke, but it's a joke that that necessitates that you predict the edit. Hmm. That like, oh, I know, like, the next shot, oh, well, this must be, because we went from looking at food going in a bowl to food being served, this must be the food that he made. The joke is that it's not. So it's actually Hmm. kind of a high concept, inside baseball editing joke. And I can appreciate it well. that. I think it works well, but if you're There's not a, really thinking on that wavelength, I can also see it kind of, it kind of like you go, huh? And then move on. I, uh, there, there's a movie out there um, nobody saw a movie called Palmetto uh, oh with, yeah wow if, 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 yeah I'm yeah. glad to call that one up out of the memory it bank based um, on a James Hadley Chase novel wasn't James it? Hadley Chase directed yeah. by Volker Volker Schlorndorf yeah uh, who did the Tin Drum starring Woody Harrelson and, and, and Elizabeth Brid- Shue was, was Elizabeth Shue that's why yeah. I almost said Bridget Fonda you're right it Elizabeth no it was Elizabeth Shue, Shue. and yeah. um, and it's like I a scu- it's like a scuzzy noir film she, she was in that other James Hadley Chase adaptation with Russell Crowe about magicians. Oh, what was that one called? Yeah, what was that? I, I didn't see that, but I know what I'm you're not, talking that's, about. That's going to drive me nuts when I look um, that up. But yeah, in Palmetto, uh, it's it's a scuzzy movie. It's this noir film, and people yeah. die. And yeah. there's a, a scene in the movie where they have a dead body, and they're sort of storing it in this big, um, like aluminum tray, like aluminum bucket. It's like, uh, yeah. and they said, oh, "Well, we've called a guy who can clean this rough up." Rough magic. That was rough the name of it. magic. I didn't see rough yeah. magic. I, I was. Um, it was just okay. But they have a they have a dead body, yeah. and this guy says, "Oh, I, I got this uh, this great um, solution. It's like acid. I just pour it on a dead body, and it just melts it, and it turns it into liquid. And that's a great mm-hmm. way to dispose of a body." Yeah, this, and, this movie takes place in the past, it, it's, before there was a cliche. Yeah, and so yeah. he starts melting the body, and he reaches in with like a mop handle. And he starts stirring. And it's so <laughs> gross. Like, you don't see the gore, but, yeah, but like, it, was, it, just there, it doesn't weird. just immediately turn into liquid. There's sludge first. Yeah, so it's like, yeah. kind of like, he's, oh, pushing, like he's pushing a mop so handle gross. through like, the sludge that was just a um, human body a moment ago. There... And there's a hard cut to a close up of a plate of spaghetti. Nice. And it's the grossest thing, and it's so great. Wasn't there an episode of Breaking Bad where they, like, tried to dissolve someone in a bathtub, but it dissolved the bathtub? Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, that'd, that'd be pretty Classic. funny. Um,. But to answer your second question about John Carter, I thought maybe I mentioned it in my uh, my honorable mentions, but I guess maybe I didn't. John Carter is one of the biggest bombs in Disney's history. It is not the biggest bomb. That is uh, Marsney's Moms, which is one of the mm. reasons why they were really skittish about advertising John Carter as a movie that takes place on Mars, because Marsney's Moms lost so much fucking mo- look it yeah. up it lost so much it, fucking money Marsney's Moms is one of the top 10 biggest bombs of all time I think John Carter is still the biggest 
money loss in terms of like just raw dollars. But let me, I, let me I look that up. Look that up. I really do think Marzine's mom's is, is ahead. But John Carter lost a lot of money, and one of the problems with John Carter, uh, from sort of a publicity perspective is that in the months leading up to its release, the fact that it had cost a ton of money, like an unexpectedly large amount of money Mm. was the narrative. The narrative going in was that this movie was going to fail. Now, sometimes that isn't necessarily a self-fulfilling prophecy. That's what everyone said about Titanic. Yeah. But sure enough, opening weekend of Titanic, it wasn't the biggest opening weekend of all time. And everyone thought, Oh, well, you can't win them all, can you, James Cameron? Yeah. And then it just kept making money for months. And he yeah, was right. It, st- it stayed number one until like the following April or something. Yeah, he, it was like, oh, he was I right. Know. You were wrong, and you're going to have to live with that. And you know what? I was wrong, too. I also thought it wasn't going to be a huge hit. Um, John Carter, on the other hand, failed to make that impression. Uh, is it that bad? No, it's not that bad. It's certainly not one of the worst movies ever made. It doesn't. It didn't deserve to lose all that money. What it was, for the most part, was just okay. It was, yeah. There's which, stuff I really like is, about it. Which is almost like even worse than if it were bad. But yeah. it's, that is adequate. Yeah, because um, bad I've, usually is you did something really interesting. So these are numbers adjusted for inflation. And yes, okay. John Carter, if on the high end of things, might have lost as much as $255 million. That's a lot of money. That's a lot. Yeah. What about, um, what about Marzini's mom's? Number, uh, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. It's the ninth biggest bomb of all time. And what's the number? Uh, it lost maybe as much as 187 adjusted. Okay. Million. Well, I think, I think before John Carter came out, that was near the top. Yeah. Um, um, let's see. What else uh, is on that list? Go, going down the list, uh, Lone Ranger. Also uh, Disney. Well, also, yeah, also Disney. All of these movies are Disney trying to go for like the sci-fi yeah. market without like a huge um, pre-existing. Owned by yeah. Disney now, but not when it came out. The 13th Warrior, because they had to, oh, yeah. they had to shoot it twice. They had to reshoot the whole movie. They, they had movie. to reshoot the whole movie. The movie was okay, so. by the way. I actually kind of like oh, that fine, movie. It's, yeah. it's, it's, the editing's off, but it's still pretty um, good. Number four, Mortal Engines. Also a neat movie. I like that pretty, movie. Yeah, pretty neat. Yeah, but again, formulaic, okay. but the, the cool parts are uh, really cool. Almost as big a bomb, Cutthroat Islands, the Rennie Harlan movie. I'm going to be honest. I know that movie has its defenders. I've never gotten all the way through that movie. <laughs> I'm, I always get bored it's, a third of it's a third way through, and I'm like, you know yeah. what? I don't need to watch. It's no long kiss goodnight. I know mm. that they can make better movies. I know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this is a surprising one. Sinbad Leg- Legend of the Seven Seas, the animated film. I really uh, didn't know that cost that much. Because they were using like yeah. experimental CGI, like it was expensive yeah. to make. Uh, then Strange World, sorry, Strange World, uh, Disney's oh, most yeah. recent animated which, film, which was okay. I liked Strange World. It was neat. It's also okay. Didn't deserve to bomb that hard. Uh, followed by Battleship, based on the board game. Also fun, a fun movie. Battleship, stupid. No, it's, it's a very, it's fun it's to not watch. That fun. It's fun to watch. <laughs> I would enjoy watching it again yeah. if it were on right now. Then Mars Needs Moms, and the tenth biggest bomb of all time was. Pan, the Joe Wright film. Uh, which Disney now also now also owns. Now also owns, Disney so. owns a lot of that shit. Yeah. And, um, and number 11, Tomorrowland. So yeah, they, yeah. A, lot, a lot of Disney films right at the top. A lot there. of Disney big swings. Um, but again there's, again, there's stuff I really, really like about John Carter. I think Lynn Collins as Deja Thoris is exquisitely yeah, good yeah. casting. That should have rocketed her to stardom. Even well, in it its is. failure, that movie yeah. should have rocketed her to stardom, and that's a tragedy. She was amazing in that movie. I think the biggest issue with John Carter is John Carter. Yeah, the Taylor Kitsch. Taylor Kitsch wasn't... Like, he... I guess he's fine. He's doing the job, but... Yeah. You, you remove him from the story, you know, sort of this outsider, but you just make it about Deja Thoris. Yeah. 
have her be the hero. Well, the original title of the book was, was Princess of a, Mars. A Princess of Mars, yeah, yeah. And then Disney was like, oh, we can't sell that movie to boys, so let's not let's call it John Carter of Mars. Oh, wait, Mars doesn't sell very well. Let's just call it John Carter. But then let's emphasize Mars in all of our advertising. Mm. Fucking Disney. Uh, but anyway, I love Lynn Collins in that movie. She's great. I think Will, uh, Willem Dafoe makes a really fun uh, like alien like, he, he does the, partner the, character. He's the really avatar good. thing. It's just motion yeah, capture. He's really, thing. really good. And I think he makes a fun character. And I think Michael Giacchino's score is fantastic. Yeah. Uh, the rest of the movie, it's it's okay. Mm. I'd, I'd watch it again. I've watched it a couple of times. It's, it's an okay movie. It just, it's we've talked about it before. It's one of those things where it inspired so many things that came after it that even though it was first, it now feels like it's last. Yeah. It really. feels like it's just, other, everything else kind of topped it already. And the filmmakers, in attempting to evoke what, made it work originally failed to present it in a way that made it feel like a movie that's necessary now yeah and that's a shame because it was kind of neat kind of it was kind of neat it's a neat film i enjoyed watching it It didn't make Mm -hmm. my top 10 the movies that actually did make my top 10 are films i'm kind of passionate about yeah and john carter there was a time when i was more passionate about it, like right when it came out and i was kind of like hey this movie got a bum rap yeah but time has gone by and i merely like it yeah, there aren't too many. Uh, problem with those big box office bombs is, and they're all mm. recent. They're all like in the last twenty years. Well, the ones that look cost that much, you know. Like you know, there's other. Well, well this is adjusted. This is adjusted for inflation. I understand that. And you know, the high risk, high return is also making some of the biggest bombs of all time. True. And and you know, the pandemic didn't help. Films like you know Wonder Woman eighty four and Turning Red are some of the biggest bombs of all time and, because and they even, were, didn't show in theaters. And even films like uh, Indiana Jones and Dial Destiny and Mission mm. Impossible: Dead Reckoning Part One, which underperformed mm. you know didn't make the money the series wanted them to one of the reasons is because they were made during covid there were delays yeah. kudos to everyone at mission impossible apparently one of the reasons that movie is one of the most expensive movies ever made is they kept everyone on the payroll while they weren't working yeah so Which, I, good I for them that. that's yeah. great but unfortunately it means the movie still didn't make its money back so but uh, I, I admire that about tom cruise he looks after the crew um anyway big bombs big bombs Anyway, uh, well, I was going to say, um, mm. when they spend that much, you know, they sort of spend a lot on spectacle. Yeah. And the way CGI uh, special effects tend to be used mm-hmm. is very casual. It's rare that they actually dazzle. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's these big expensive movies that are actually kind of boring to look at. Yeah. Even though they spent all this money to make these like really you know expensive CGI landscapes. It's like, yeah. But you're not letting me look at it. You're not letting me yeah. savor it. You don't need to spend that much like, money. Like, you know, you know what movie that actually did dazzle, mm. even though it didn't in a conventional way? Barbie. Yeah. Barbie. You look at Barbie just, and you go like, wow, what wonderful production design and costumes. And you kind of lose yourself in it. It didn't cost Avengers Endgame money. Mm. It was not cheap, but like, it still... It just in- invented an aesthetic and let us look at it. Yeah. That, that was nice. Yeah. Yeah. That doesn't necessarily mean a movie is going to do well. Speed mm. Racer did that and nobody cared at the time. Mm. Valerian is one of the prettiest sci-fi oh, yeah. movies ever produced. Nobody cared. Um, Valerian's one of those rare times when I was dazzled by the yeah. special effects. So much, so, that, so much so that the story's failings didn't matter anymore. It was yeah, just it was looked just, that good. It was just great to look at. Yeah. Um, oh, well. Anyway, uh, go to the next letter. Nice letter. This is a letter from Jinxie. Hi, Jinxie. Hi, Jinxie. Um, dear Commander Whitney and Ensign Bibbs. Oh. That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> I'm not going to fight that. I was demoted. Insubordination. I'm not captain yet. <laughs> uh, most importantly, first things first, Commander Ransom... And Shax, mm-hmm. characters from Star Trek Lower Decks, uh-huh. pulled those outfits off. They did. Uh, 
there was a callback in a Lower Decks episode where they're wearing the same embarrassing uh, spandex workout uni- uniforms mm. worn by Marina Sirtis and Gates McFadden in an old uh, Next Generation episode. It's one of the most notorious scenes in all of the Next Generation, which is saying something, uh, because it was one of the few times they really shamelessly went for mm. cheesecake. Yeah. It's like, look at how sexy our, our protagonists are. They're wearing the spandex that you know and love mm. from such hit films as Perfect. Uh, and, that, <laughs> and that one ja- uh, aerobicizing scene everyone loves from Superman 4, The Quest for Peace. Uh, it's extended. They're talking about sex and romance the entire time. It's genuinely weirdly shameless. It's one of the more embarrassing moments in Star Trek. And Lower Decks... Bless them for trying. I don't think they quite pulled it off, but bless them for trying. They just tried to take the curse off of it by saying that those sexy outfits, mm. standard issue workout outfits, yeah, for for Starfleet, even the men wear them. Nothing that was in that episode of Star Trek that is embarrassing was intended to be ogled. That was very normal for Starfleet. <laughs> Everyone wears yeah. it. It's a weird retcon, yeah, so yeah, but kudos J- for trying. Jinxie says they looked good, and more men should consider wearing those outfits. Agreed. Well, I've, I've, I've been trying trying to bring back the uh, bodysuit thong myself. Mm, um, leg warmers, that's what I need. No, no, no. My just... legs are very chilly. Just down here by the um, calves. Secondly, there was a discussion about episodes with trans representation in them. This is Star Trek. Yeah. Um, I wanted to recommend to you and your listeners a podcast, uh, a podcast, mm-hmm. and two YouTubers. The podcast is Gayest Episode Ever. Ooh. I like the title already. Yeah. It's a podcast with two gay men and sometimes a guest who talk about LGBTQIA episodes of sitcoms. Ah. They try to get someone who fits what the topic is, and it's been really interesting learning about this history. That's awesome. Um, I would love yeah, I, that. I, I'm not well-versed enough in, like, sitcom history, well, they, to, but I can cite a couple of them. There was a time, I mean, I, I don't really follow a lot of sitcoms now, but there was, a, there was a time when there would be a very special episode of various shows, mm-hmm. and they would tackle whatever was topical at the time. There would be an episode where none of the protagonists were ever no, queer. I, I, but there was yeah. always, like, a new person at school or a new person mm-hmm. at work who was queer. And one of the characters was like, oh, I have some uh, I'm, I'm unresolved... Pre- I'm prejudiced, but then I meet this person, and yeah. then I'm... Yeah. Not not as prejudiced. And then at anymore. the end, the soundtrack goes da na na, like because we all learned something. Uh, I've seen a ton of those episodes. <laughs> That's right. true. There's probably one of almost any sitcom and, and made before And it's 2000. not just queerness; they do that with like uh, oh, sure. like alcoholism or some mm. other issue of the. Week, I remember man. the AIDS episode of Mr. Belvedere. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. They, oh god. Anyway, it, they they were they some were of them were well intentioned. Some yeah. of them were very badly handled. Anyway, moving on. Um, but yeah. Uh, Matt Baum does YouTube videos. That's B A U M E. Maybe Bauma. Yeah. Uh, does <coughs> excuse me. Does YouTube videos on the subject of gay history? Mm. He does tend to lean more on the gay side, but the research is great. Mm. Uh, he also just wrote a book called "Hi Honey, I'm Homo," which gives a quick <laughs> overview of the gay television landscape. Okay. He does an excellent job of making uh, making sure you knew what is happening in gay history at the time. Yeah. Finally, Lily Simpson is a trans YouTuber who focuses on more modern trans representation. I found her when someone recommended a video she did on Futurama predicting the current trans athletes debate. Oh, because there's an episode of uh, oh, I didn't Futurama know where Leela joins the baseball league. Like, she's the first woman mm-hmm. in the baseball league. Um, oh, no, 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 not that one. Okay. Uh, there's one where Bender actually g- undergoes gender reassignment surgery mm. to win the Olympics. Okay. That's an actual plot yeah, of the future anime yeah, episode. Yeah. Okay. Um, I th- it's called Bend Her. Bend hyphen her. Bend her is the title of the episode. I get it. Um, 
each has such an interesting point of view that I don't mind when they take on the same episode. I figure there might be some people out there who would want to dive more into this. Moopsie, Jinxie. Yeah, I, I don't have as much time to watch other people's... Mat- <laughs> I feel like Garth Marenghi sometimes when he said, uh, I'm one of the few people who's written more books than they've read. Um, it's not strictly true for me with podcasts, although I probably have made more podcasts than I've listened to and on average. Um, but there are a lot of podcasts that I love and I'm always looking for more recommendations, especially in that realm. Uh, so thank you for those. I had heard of Matt Baum. Uh, I didn't know the others and that's really exciting. Uh, a couple of recommendations I'll make as well. I'm a big fan of Kazro, K-A-Z-R-O-W-E. Mm. Uh, they do a lot of, uh, history, sometimes media history as well, uh, often through a queer lens, uh, and they're just really wonderful. Uh, Jesse Gender, I'm a huge fan of Jesse Gender. They do wonderful, Je- Jesse Gender, huge. Great, they've yeah. done huge deep dives into like sexual representation of all kinds in Star Trek and a lot, a lot uh, of Star Trek. I, I watch Jesse Gender. Star Trek. I watch they, Jesse Gender Star Trek stuff. Yeah, but she's, they also they really talk about other that, things yeah. as well. Uh, Aranok is wonderful as well. Uh, they just did a video about Nimona. Um, uh, <sighs> And others as well. I'm totally blanking because it's late at night. But that this is really great. And please listen to all those people. Check out all those YouTube channels. That's really exciting. And um, yeah, is that, honestly, that's just a good idea for storytelling because yeah. the history of representation is constantly in flux, which is good. It should always be improving. But um, it's really interesting. We shouldn't lose sight of where we've been yeah. and what that meant at the time and what was occasionally done well. A lot of it was done badly and we, what mm-hmm. we can still learn from. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure if I have any like apart from Jesse Gender. There's not a not a lot of YouTubers I go to um, like a, about sort of like that particular uh, yeah. like queerness in media. Those, yeah, like, there are other YouTubers I, like I, I I watch like I love Kenny JD. They do a, a video series mm-hmm. called Bad Movies in a Beat where they watch a bad movie while uh, doing their makeup. Oh, and they're very funny. funny. Yeah. They're very, very funny. I like them a lot. Yeah. Uh, I, I was a little burnt by some of the YouTubers I used to watch, like, maybe 10 or 15 years ago. Sure. Uh, and we've talked about sort of the the wave of... Um, the grumpy critic. Yeah, the grumpy critic. The cranky a lot critic, of, I think is the word you use. Cr- yeah, yeah, cranky critic. Uh, th- this idea of, we're going to watch a bad movie, but we're just going to slag on it. We're not actually yeah. not going to do any analysis. And we're going to take it weirdly personally. We're going to make it, like, really emotional, yeah, and, angry and, and, and that was And that was a, mm. a bit. They yeah. were doing comedy. Yeah. What they were doing, and it, I enjoyed it's one thing, it. It's one thing yeah. if it's genuine, and you actually have a personal, like a lot of Jesse yeah. Gender's videos are about a very personal reaction that they have. Uh, but uh, this was like I had, I saw Scooby Doo Monsters Unleashed, mm. and I have feelings. No, you do yeah. not. I hated hated this you movie. And don't there's I don't think you could possibly again, be that passionate about that. I, I didn't believe the passion, but I pre- I liked mm. the bit. I liked them using Occasionally they film film criticism as grist for comedy, and I thought that was yeah. a, a fair thing to do. I'm, it kind of ended up hurting a lot of the critical landscape because a lot of viewers thought it was genuine when mm-hmm. clearly or it thought wasn't. or thought that it should be taken seriously. Or, yeah, that, like that—that that, like, that yeah. was like a legitimate way to talk the, about the movies. line. Unfortunately, got blurred. Yeah. between what was a satire of criticism mm. and what was actual criticism, and people started to kind of meet each other in the middle, yeah, where and... the satirists wanted to be taken seriously, and the people who wanted to be taken seriously wanted to get some of that satirist money. Yeah, and um... it really—you're right. I think it hurt the medium overall, yeah. and it blurred like, um, a lot of lines that probably shouldn't have been blurred. The, the one that rests on the line between like what what's trying to be satire and trying to be legit is cinema sins and i know a lot of people hate cinema sins because they're they were one of the more popular ones Mm. and so it's kind of hard for me to watch a lot of the modern criticism because i get if i get a slight whiff of that 
of yeah. the, this using criticism as satire, it kind of puts me off a little bit. But I think you can still do that and be funny. I sent yeah, absolutely you, you can. I sent you a video, I think yesterday, of a TikToker who did this wonderful essay on Tiny Toons. Did you watch that? I didn't get a chance to watch okay, it. Okay, I'm gonna. I want to hold on. I want to uh, look up the the person's mm-hmm. name because because I've really written wonderful. essays on Tiny Toons. I'm a I'm, yeah. a, ti- I'm a Tiny Toons man. Uh, I love me on. some Tiny Toons. Uh, here, uh, Very- Nicholas N I K N I C K O L A S underscore. Uh, oh God, my eyesight's bad. Uh, <laughs> well, Nameless N A M E O L A S, and they did a wonderful essay about because there's a new reboot of Tiny Tunes, and it's a reboot. Mm. They're just ignoring all the old. And he wrote it. He did a wonderful, and it's funny, and it's very thoughtful essay about how Tiny Tunes are a metaphor for millennials. Because the whole point of Tiny Toons was that the older generation was teaching a new generation of cartoons to, like, take over and now the world will be yours. But the older generation never actually gave up any of their power and the Mm -hmm. Tiny Toons just went away. And then it just became more bugs, more Daffy, more bugs, more Mm -hmm. Daffy. The boomers controlled everything and they never gave anything up to the millennials. They still controlled everything at all. And now... Everything's fucked. Uh, uh, as you and as usual, Gen X is completely overlooked in this equation. And mm-hmm. in fact, the Tiny Toons are Gen Xers. Well, uh, and in fact, they are the exact age as Gen Xers. And in I, fact, they age like Gen Xers. There was a, 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 okay. a spring break special years after the show went off the air, and the mm-hmm. characters were a little bit older. Uh, fair to see it as a millennial uh, it, it, screen, I, but it was It's not about it being intentional. Like, film criticism is rarely about intentionality. That's not the point. The point is, is it a legitimate take? Mm. And overall, whether you apply it to Gen Xers or millennials or whatever, mm. uh, th- their overall point was, if they don't reboot the Tiny Toons, the question they had to answer is, where were the Tiny Toons? Yeah. Did not the t- uh, Looney Tunes teaching the Tiny Toons to be great cartoons fail? Yeah. <laughs> because they weren't around for decades. You can't answer that question, so the only thing you can do is reboot it. Uh, so, it was a good art. It was a very, very good. It's like a two-part well, TikTok. It's very funny. I, I recommend it. My idea for a reboot, because they're rebooting Tiny Toons. They're going to make... Yeah. Uh, Didn't they make Buster and Babs siblings now? They're not siblings. I thought they... That's they, what I heard. They, they changed up the voice cast. They're not getting the old voice okay. cast back. Uh, Tress McNeil's not on the show. So fuck it. Well, I mean, uh, Joel Lasky's yeah. dead. Uh, Charlie Adler yeah. wants to stay the way well, well away from Tiny Toons, but um, yeah. uh, before they started doing that, I had an idea to, to reboot Tiny Toons. You catch up with them when they're middle aged. This is something that they talk about in that essay as well. Yeah, that like, that yeah. would have been great, and yeah. and it would also have been great. Like it opens with uh, Plucky Duck, still a struggling mm-hmm. actor, yeah. holding a beer next to Hampton's grave, like. <laughs> So you want Chippendales Rescue Rangers the movie? Yes, but darker, please. Like okay. I want, I want to see them like try to re- revive their careers after their hopes of becoming uh, film stars as kids mm. didn't pan out. Okay, that would have been a great approach to it. I don't disagree. Mm. All right, well, let's see, let's do another one. Hi, hiya, Toonsters. <laughs> Sorry, I got got a polyp. You know. Oh God. <laughs> please let's move on. Here's a letter from Daniel. Okay. Uh, dear Bibbs and Whitney, uh, I've been slowly going through the BBC Shakespeare series on BritBox. Ooh. And I was inspired to write in because I know Whitney is especially a big Shakespeare person and has watched the series. Uh, we're both Shakespeare nerds. You're, you're, but, you're more uh, of a Shakespeare nerd than I am. You've like you've watched all the BBC, for example. I, yeah, I've watched like all those that. BBCs. But I, I do love Shakespeare a lot. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah in, in starting in the late 70s and going through the early 80s, uh, the BBC did 
filmed productions of every one of Shakespeare's plays, even the obscure ones. And some of those obscure ones are really great. Mm-hmm. Some of the better known ones aren't. Yeah. Uh, I, uh, sometimes anyway. they're just famous. <laughs> like we, we call well, them so, classics. Sometimes they're just old. Or, or sometimes they're just bad productions of good plays. Also true. The, uh, the also production true. the BBC did of A Midsummer Night's Dream is abysmal. Ah, oh, stupid. Uh, you could tell that the director, and I remember his fucking name... <laughs> Uh, it's a guy named the director I'm was still the, mad. I was mad, so I looked up like, "Who's this fucker?" His name is Elijah Moshinsky, and he decided to. Uh, so yeah, I have a personal vendetta against this obscure British I'm lo- director. I'm looking up Elijah uh, Moshinsky, but uh, he wanted to stage a Midsummer Night's Dream after the art, like the paintings mm-hmm. of a. Uh, uh, like a 15th century artist named John Henry Fuseli. Okay. You might know John Henry Fuseli because he did a, a, one of my favorite paintings it's called the nightmare. Oh yeah. And that's it's, great. That's it's, a great yeah, painting. Yeah. Uh, did actually a pair of yeah. the paintings where it's a, a woman laying in bed in complete distress. And the nightmare she's having is a creature sitting on her chest. Really scary looking thing. There's one version where it looks a little bit like a, like a troll or an ogre. There's another one where it's like a little bit yeah. more angular and fox like. And, uh, and the nightmare clearly came in like on a nightmarish horse. So there's this nightmarish horse in the bedroom. Scary pictures. Uh, John Henry Fusely also did a couple paintings of A Midsummer Night's Dream. John Henry Fusely played interestingly with light, where there's a lot of black around the edges of the painting. Mm-hmm. And there's like a single illuminated image right in the middle. So everything looked really kind of nightmarish, even when he's doing A Midsummer Night's Dream, which is a delightful play about romantic <laughs> misunderstandings and fairies and magic and sexual freedom. Okay. Uh, imagine every frame of A Midsummer Night's Dream looking like the nightmare. Imagine Puck is a <laughs> vampire. And imagine at the very end when the fairies break in and make merry while everybody's, you know, everybody's gotten married and everybody's fucking in the, in the final, mm. you know, final scenes of A Midsummer Night's Dream. And imagine the fairies break in and they just trash the joint. Like yeah. the last scene of the play is them getting up on a table and like b- stepping on things and breaking shit. That's a that's horrifying. Well, this like, is not a comedy film anymore. Like, it what looks are you like doing? he did several of the others as well. Yeah, uh, yeah. He did uh, All's Well That Ends Well. Uh-huh. Is that okay? No. Cymbeline? Uh, Cymbeline, good play, not a good production. Though. Okay. Coriolanus? BBC Coriolanus. Uh, okay, imagine Coriolanus mm-hmm. if the two ri- the two rival soldiers uh-huh. were secretly lovers. Sounds awesome. Yeah, and not handled well though. Oh, that's a shame. Uh, and then uh, looks like he also did the, their version of Love's Labor's Lost, which admittedly is kind of a stinker of a play. To that's begin not, with, yeah, it's not a like, good play. Yeah. So yeah, Elijah okay. Moshinsky. I did not like Elijah Moshinsky's production. Okay. Well, I'm sorry. To, I'm, anyway. so, I'm, I'm sorry he failed you. To get back to the letter, uh, okay. the series has a lot of great actors, and some of the episodes are terrific, but they're definitely hit or miss. Mm-hmm. One major problem is the series is almost distractingly low budget at times. Yeah, well, they filmed a, just the BBC lot with yeah. on VHS. Yeah. Um, or I guess on Betamax. Uh, it seems like a lot of the directors were stage directors, and I think that shows in a bad way because a lot of, a lot of the episodes are shot in a very boring way. Just camera the. Camera on the action and sort of mm. awkward framing, and everything is too claustrophobic. Mm. However, in the better episodes, the strength of the acting and staging overcomes the budget limitations, and you can get involved in the camera. I think my favorites of the ones I've watched so far are Hamlet. Uh, uh, Hamlet's had Derek Jacobi as Hamlet. Nice. And Patrick Stewart as Claudius. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Hamlet. The Tempest. Uh, Macbeth and Titus Andronicus. Okay. One of the less effective ones I found, uh, Coriolanus, was tough to get through. 
because I thought the lead actor was oddly cast and it was shot poorly. A Midsummer Night's Dream was also rough. <laughs> what did I just fucking say? Because the conception was oddly dark. And I've seen and I've seen at least three better versions, even with the ups and downs. I think it was cool that the series exists because it means there's a film of every Shakespeare play. I haven't gotten to most of the history plays yet, so I'm curious for those. Uh I forgot I forgot the name of the director, unfortunately, but um, they got the same director to do uh, the York Tetralogy, and they mm-hmm. did uh, one director to do all of the uh, Plantagenet Tetralogy. Oh, okay. York Tetralogy being um, Henry VI, part, parts one, two, and three, and Richard III. Mm-hmm. And those you're gonna you're gonna have a great time with the Henry the Sixth plays because those are kind of obscure. Mm-hmm. People don't read Henry the Sixth. Yeah. Uh, and Henry the Sixth goes like they were early in Shakespeare's oh, career, lot, and they, yeah. they're they're really wild. And uh, Joan of Arc is in it, but she's a villain. And uh, <laughs> in this, I think in part two they have like a seance, and there's a ghost in that one. Wow. Uh, I think it's part two that has the "Let's kill all the lawyers" speech. Yeah. Um, and which which Patrick Stewart would later uh, give in Star Trek? Kill all the lawyers from the first episode. Oh, famously with what Shakespeare always threatened kill all the lawyers and then he was like and this was done at the beginning of Henry VI part one everything's really artificial the castles look like they're really brightly painted Mm. the horses are uh, like you can it's almost like Monty Python really trotting along with these like wooden things strapped around their bodies yeah you're calling attention everything's really kind of stagey and artificial and as the plays go on and as the the royal family starts falling apart and going to war. The War oh. of the Roses is uh, the the main plot point in the, those plays. Uh, things get really kind of dirtier. The stages start to break down. Mm, that's uh, cool. They start like smashing the sets. Eventually, they don't shoot on location, but they start shooting in like broader, blacker spaces. Yeah. They get real horses after a while. Like the horses become yeah. It, sounds, it's, like, sounds like they it's really thought really, it out. That's like, really cool. It, they and they have this the titles on stage with the actors so mm-hmm. they like pull down this shade it's like henry the sixth part one mm-hmm. by the time you get to part three they throw a shroud over a dead body with the title on it nice you're gonna like those those are really great okay cool um anyway uh do I you wanna, have i want to see that um sorry i want to see that Derek jacoby patrick stewart um hamlet because one thing i like about that yeah. um patrick stewart is younger than Derek Jacobi. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. So Claudius is younger than Hamlet, which really adds another dimension to that play Uh and the sort of betrayal that that is. And and, and I love... Oedipal it gets. I also love seeing Derek Jacobi play Hamlet because he played Claudius in Brenna's version of Hamlet. Yeah, he was good at it too. Uh, So, um... Anyway, uh, it says, do you guys have favorite or least favorite episode? Well, we're just talking about that. Uh, I know Whitney has mentioned some before, but curious about any of you, if you haven't had a chance to talk about that were memorable, for better or for worse. Thanks for your work. The podcast frequently start my day. Uh, Thank you. Sincerely, Daniel. Well, thank you. Yeah, and we accidentally answered your question ahead of time. But yeah, um, but yeah Whitney Whitney does like his Shakespeare. Yeah. Uh, and so do I, but I'm not you as can find obsessed. Those on, you guess. can find those on BritBox. Uh, the great thing about those Shakespeare's, any library has them. A li- yeah. Your local library is going to have those on, on mm. DVD or um, or on, I don't think they're all on Blu-ray. They might uh, be on I, Canopy, though. I don't know. I I have them. I have the box set. Because <laughs> yeah, I'm very fond of them. Um, let's see, apart from the ones I've mentioned, um, their version of the Comedy of Errors is really great. Okay. Uh, just because it's it's bright, it's well staged. It, they do that kind of like cheap split screen thing because it's about two pairs of identical twins. Um, and Roger Daltrey plays one of the sets of twins. Oh, that's From weird. The Who. Yeah. Because he, 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 he acted. He did you know. Dolan's bad thing. Then wasn't he in Witchblade? 
I don't know if he was in Witchblade. I think he was in Witchblade. I could be wrong. Mm-hmm. With uh, with our one of our favorite uh, people, Yancey Butler. Yancey uh, Butler is amazing. She's not in any of the BBC. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's and that's why they failed. <laughs> that's why nobody talks about him anymore. Let me look up, uh, yeah, some of the BBC television Shakespeare. Let's see here. Roger Daltrey. He was the caterpillar on that TV series Once Upon a Time. Oh, you know what? That's pretty good, actually. These BBCs are on uh, Amazon Prime. Hey, that's great. I thought uh, that, might, so. that might be through BritBox, actually. I'm not sure. Oh, yeah, maybe uh, so. Because that's something you can get, like, through the, the thingy. Uh, Roger Daltrey was on Highlander. He was on Sliders. Oh, I, this is what I was thinking of. He was in Vampirella. Uh, I think, I think okay. Jim Wynorski did that version, actually. Yeah. Oh, so I- Jim Wynorski's Vampirella with Talisa Soto and Roger Daltrey. <laughs> Oof. See, um, Oof. but yeah, the, the cast on these things is is fucking amazing. Um, John Gilgood's in a lot of these. Just oh as- no, he wasn't which play. He was in Witchblade. He was in Witchblade too. I'm not crazy. He was in Witchblade the series as well. Yeah, only two episodes. For some reason, I thought it was regular. Yeah. Um. If if you like Derek Jacobi, he's all over these things. He plays Richard II in Richard II. John Gilgood plays John of Gaunt in that one. Mm -hmm. Um. Looking at some of these casts here, Uh, as you like it had Helen Mirren. That's great. Uh, and and if you're into sort of British character actors, you're going to see a lot of them in here too. Uh, I don't think this was like before Brana's time, so you're not going to see like his generation of actors. Well, you might, but like you know, he had some of the older actors in his stuff as well. Derek Jacoby, for yeah. example. Um, um, I did like their Julius Caesar. It's pretty, pretty good. Mm-hmm. Uh, straight up the middle kind of a version. The the plays that really kind of opened up to me when I saw you know because a lot of these plays aren't performed that often. So plays like Cymbeline. And the one I really liked was Pericles, Prince of Tyre. Mm. And I really liked Timon of Athens. Because okay. th- those are kind of obscure plays. Pericles, Prince of Tyre is um, a, kind of an adventure story. It's, uh, you know, um, uh, Pericles is going to marry, but he finds out that, uh, you know, you can marry me if you can solve this riddle. And the riddle revealed that, like, she was in an incestuous affair with her own father. Wow, so he ended up that's run- a lot. He ended up running, and he ended up getting get captured by pirates, and he had a daughter, and she was captured by pirates. There's all kinds of cool stuff in that yeah. book. I'm trying to remember now um, which version of The Merchant of Venice we watched when I was in junior high. It was either oh, yeah. the 1973 version or the 1980 version. Well, the 80 to... version might have been the BBC then. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the Shakespeare collection. Yeah, I think I think I saw the uh, Laurence Olivier version from 1973. I remember liking it at the time. Mm-hmm. Anyway, we should move on. Um, yeah, I, I like those. Those are good. They're good Shakespeare's. Mm. Here's a letter from Sammy. Hello, Sammy. Hi, Sammy. Uh, greetings from Israel. Oh, hi. Oh, shalom. Wow. Uh, Bibbs and Rockmeister McCool. It's all spelled weird. Uh, <laughs> There's I just, no wrong way to spell that. I just got a, yeah, every, every spelling is correct. I just got a present that included both the theatrical and TV versions of Scenes from a Marriage. Wow. Uh, and Fanny and Alexander. Wow. There's some Bergman there. I was wondering which version is better and which version to start with. Thank you from your loyal listener, Sammy. Uh, uh, that is a Whitney question. I've actually seen neither of those. You haven't seen Family and Alexander? No, I've never seen Family and Alexander. No. You see it. No, I, I, really I'll get to it. All right. We're going to get to, uh, uh, there's some movies, we have a Patreon podcast called Only the Best, and we review every single movie ever nominated for Best Picture, but we also do every movie ever nominated for Best International Feature. Mm. 
And I'm pretty sure both of those were nominated, or at least Fanny and Alexander was. Well, yeah, Scenes from a Marriage. But they, they, they did the, a movie cut, though. I was about to say, yeah. both of those uh, were broadcast in Sweden on Swedish television. It's yeah. like miniseries, and then they were recut and theatrically released in the United States. I, I will and I think check. they also got theatrical releases in Sweden. I'd have to look at that yeah. look that up to be 100% sure. But, um, Fanny Alexander, boom. Yeah, so there's a three-hour version of uh, Fanny and Alexander that made it to American theaters, but there's also a five-hour version. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the Criterion... Adi- Fanny and Alexander won four Academy Awards, including Best Foreign Language Film. Yeah, it also won, like, costumes. And yeah. Did Sven Nickvist win cinematography? I think so. Yeah. I just, just had it in front of Beautiful me. photography in that. Uh, mm-hmm. It won costume design, art direction, and cinematography. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Yeah, and then I'll look up scenes from a marriage. Yeah. Uh, Scenes from a Marriage, uh, I haven't seen the shorter version. It's been a long time since I've seen the TV version. Mm-hmm. Um, they should have called like it fewer version. scenes from a marriage. <laughs> Some scenes from a marriage. <laughs> I would recommend, uh, if you're going to do scenes from a marriage, do the long ver- do the long version of both. Mm-hmm. I mean, because you get more Bergman. <laughs> just There's just more volume of Bergman. Well, there's, there's, that's not a bad thing. I, I will say um, this. it was uh, Scenes from a Marriage wasn't nominated for any Oscar, so I guess I'll have right. to get that one on my own. Sometimes more is just more. That's true. Sometimes that, but, that, uh, it doesn't necessarily mean it's bad, but it also means that sometimes the, the more tightly constructed version is more... T- I'll go to bat for the theatrical release of Amadeus, for okay. example, as just being a better paced yeah, movie, yeah. Than um, the, right? which is also good, but mm. I would rather watch the theatrical gut. Yeah, I, um, I, I know a lot of people... Uh, there's a director's cut of um, uh, James Cameron's film Aliens. Yeah, yeah. Which is, I mean, it's it's already pretty interminably long that oh, movie. Whitney's and then the anti-alien added... stance baffles me, but okay. <laughs> it's, it, it's schlock, is what it is. Um, <sighs> it's it's it's. That doesn't anyway. necessarily make it bad, Whitney. But uh, I, I, no, I, I, I'm not even saying I disagree with you too much. I'm just uh, saying I, think I mean, I, I, I like me some schlock, but you know that yeah. that's it's, uh, I don't know. Anyway, there's a huge director's cut that added it's, like it's, a big old subplot for Ripley. Shows like, more uh, scenes on way the, more footage on the space movie, station before the aliens attack. There's and, and, there's and, a, there is some fat on that. There's it, like it this fl- one well, sequence with like these out, like robo guns that leads nowhere and doesn't matter, and that's just a waste of time. But it fleshes a lot out. It changes the story a lot. I've read up on like all of the things that were added and the pacing is just terrible now <laughs> like it just it, well you, it's not, you said not, you read up on it you haven't really uh, watched it it sounds like the pacing so, yeah, just, you uh, should like, watch the next time you I have should, a chance yeah. to watch the aliens whether it's for work or mm-hmm. anything like that watch a director's cut uh it, it's mostly a better film there's oh, okay. a few scenes that i don't think they needed but yeah. mostly it's I, I a know better the, film. i know the big change um and you've told me about this was they added uh a, a couple lines of dialogue about a daughter that uh, Ripley had had back on Earth. Oh, it's not just the. the who, it's like um, it's like her like going through the pictures and everything. It's very emotional. It's very. It's uh, not just a couple of lines, but like yeah, but it turns out Ripley that, was a mother. She, yeah. She's not a mother in the the uh, theatrical cut. They cut that part that plot yeah. down. But yeah, the um, in the director's cut, you find out that when she like was like in hypersleep for like seventy years, she was on her way home to see her daughter who was still a child, and then the daughter grew up and died of old age before Ripley woke up and she missed all of that. And that added some pathos a little, and a, a little, little bit, bit pathos, more texture yeah. to her later relationship with Newt as sort right. of a surrogate mother-daughter relationship. So Lost one daughter, again another. Um, that's a bit whole movie's about motherhood, isn't it? It's about mm. Ripley being a mother. It's about the alien queen being a mother. It's actually yeah, uh, something, some connective tissue, you know? It yeah, works. Yeah. A little bit more 
actual themes in it rather yeah. than just mar- marines say thi- this, saying things like let's rock this is why I, that's a better director's cut it's yeah, not right. because there's more marines saying let's rock it's because there's actual it's more to, depth and themes I, I know it's like a full like 30 minutes longer it's pretty it's, long yeah, yeah. but it, it's pacing is better though all right i would argue for the most part there's a couple of scenes later on i don't think add much but mostly the pacing's better because All we're right. more invested in it so anyway it can go both ways uh, as Frank as, as bergman mm. see the longer versions okay sometimes more is more sometimes more bergman is better because you get more friggin ingmar bergman when he coming in hot with the hot takes <laughs> let's see here what else we got oh um, i know you got something here's a letter from bob the love goat hi bob the love goat uh, good morning, film gods. Oh, pish. Uh, leave your sacrifice at my door. Uh, long-time listener, first time writing in for a while. Uh, my son is seven and wants to watch a horror movie this Halloween. Ooh. Do you have any recommendations for horror movies for a seven-year-old? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, now, this is going to... I actually get this question a lot. This is actually pretty common. A lot of people, you know, want to sort of help uh, curate... Their, uh, their child's advancement through various forms of art. When's the right time to read this book? When's the right yeah. time to... And, you know, sometimes, you know, a kid can jump ahead and watch anything. And sometimes there are movies that are, regardless of whether they're considered appropriate for kids, they might be full of stuff that kids just don't get. One thing mm. we've talked about a lot is that even though The Catcher in the Rye is about someone who's like a teenager or in yeah. college, <laughs> the time to read that book is like in your late 20s. You're not, you're not really like going to... When you're past it and you can kind yeah. of reflect on that time in your life. Yeah, it's not really trying to identify with kids in the moment it's more reflective than that um so but when it comes to horror movies you have to answer yourself some questions does your child want to watch an actual honest to goodness scary movie or do they want to watch just something with vampires in it that isn't hotel transylvania so you might want to show them maybe the classic universal movies these are Mm -hmm. the great opportunity because you know later on some people might have trouble like delving into black and white because they got so used to the cinematic language of when they grew up. But when you're a kid, everything is magic. Those like glistening black and white films have this very ethereal kind of quality and it becomes kind of the atmosphere of Halloween. I would argue that seven is a pretty good age to watch Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein. Mm -hmm. You're not going to pick up on all the themes, but they'll still play great. Uh, The Wolfman holds up real good as well. And, and Creature from the Black Lagoon. Creature from the Black Lagoon's quite good as well. I feel like Dracula, I need to be a little bit older, because that's a, a really awkwardly paced movie. De- mm. Deliberately so, I enjoy that, but I, I know yeah, a, lot maybe. Of, maybe. a lot of people don't like it just because it's a little stodgy. If you want to see Dracula with slightly better pacing, see The Mummy. The original <laughs> Boris Karloff, The Mummy. They ripped off the Dracula story completely, because The Mummy wasn't based on a book. Uh, they ripped off the Dracula story completely, and I would argue that it's slightly better the second time. The only difference is... You don't have Bela Lugosi, and Bela Lugosi is iconic. So yeah. that's a good that's a good place to start. That's a really cool thing to do. Um, there, what else would be a good idea? Um, there's a few movies that are like kind of scary, mm-hmm. but are still kind of fun. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I don't have to recommend a Ghostbusters to you. Every, you know, yeah, that's and that's a, um, that's a horror comedy. That's a good one. But uh, I I would I was very fond of uh, Mad Monster Party when I was a kid. That's I'm still one. fond of Mad Monster Party today. It's stop motion animation. That's that's more uh, that's more in the Hotel Transylvania vein, but it is really neat. Yeah, it's not really a horror movie. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Um, uh, if you want something a little scarier than stop motion, go for Paranorman. That's a good one. Uh, I love Paranorman. That's a great movie. Uh, yeah. yeah. Another that was made by Leica Studios about a little mm-hmm. kid who can see ghosts and mm-hmm. you know there's the, the zombies of the the Puritans mm-hmm. uh, in Salem, Massachusetts lurch up out of their graves on Halloween night. And, yeah. 
if, if you want to see something that's a little more recent, that maybe would be like more of your, your, your kid's generation, uh, a movie that came and went and didn't get enough fanfare but was really, really good horror for kids, Vampires vs. the Bronx. Yeah. That movie kicks movie. ass, actually. That's a really, really good sort of update on the Lost Boys uh, mentality. There was, there was that one, and there was, um, was it called Midnight Books? Midnight Books, I think. No, oh, uh, um, Night Books. Night Books. Yeah, uh, with, with uh, Kristen Ritter. Kristen Ritter as a witch. That was good. I like who that captures one. two kids in her apartment and, yeah. the, and they distract her by reading stories in this fairy tale yeah. kind of a way. Um, that that one was pretty good too. Vampires yeah. vs. Bronx is a great recommendation. If you think your kid's ready for something that is kind of kid friendly, but also genuinely kind of scary, like the imagery in it's really, really creepy, you might want to consider and maybe watch this one yourself if you haven't seen it in a while to decide if it's ready or not. Or if it's appropriate enough, mm. the gate. <laughs> young Stephen Dorf, uh, kid. Op- uh, two kids open up the gate to hell in their backyard, and their house gets possessed, and there's a bunch of monsters. Uh, fun, the, fun special effects. Fun special there, effects. Yeah. The monsters are actually kind of scary. Yeah. Um, it's actually like there'll be some like ah, maybe hiding behind the couch kind of moments. But then again, maybe your kids totally prep for that or whatever. I don't remember it being especially violent, but I do remember it being a lot darker. Yeah. Than the other. Oh, here's one that might be good, actually. You want to have your kids see a proper monster movie. It's got actual monsters in it. It's definitely a horror movie, but the tone is way more Amblin-esque. Tremors. <laughs> Tremors would be a great gateway horror movie for kids. Mm, I think it might be, like, no, seven's a little young. There's a, there's a couple of scary scenes in it, but mostly it's it ends, it ends good. It ends heroically, and I think that's what they'll take away with them more than, like, the scene where people, like get sucked underground in their car. Yeah. Like, you know, that's that's there, but it's there, brief. There's, you know, there's, so there's some blood. There's, there's a, a severed there's a severed head in it. You know, it's is there um, a severed head in it? I don't remember. Yeah, remember they lay, they lift up the hat and the guy's head is in the dirt. Maybe it's a little gorier than I remember it. Okay, yeah. so take that as with anything, especially when you're recommending it for people to show to their kids, we're never just recommending something just outright go show your kid this. Always use your best judgment. You, you know it. your kid better than we do. You know so your kid yeah. way better than we do. You know what they can handle. We're just throwing out some ideas. If you don't know the film, if you're not comfortable with it, watch it yourself first mm. so that you know if your kid can handle it. Because sometimes they can, sometimes they can't. And sometimes every kid at some point in their life will probably encounter a horror movie that's ahead of them. Yeah. And for most of our generation, it was Poltergeist. That was about to say. Yeah. Poltergeist Gremlins as well. Gremlins has some really dark stuff in it, but man. Because Gremlins gets like gross at the end. When like the gremlin is like dissolving and it's really yeah. kind of great and like well, the one part where he's wielding a chainsaw is really scary, yeah. but it like also has like a, a really antic tone. It's really kind yeah. of goofy and cartoonish. It, it's Polter- pretty palatable. Yeah, Poltergeist was made by the same director as the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, yeah. so it, it has yeah some there's really a, frightening things. In it. Especially at the end, there's some really terrifying bits in Poltergeist, and yeah. also in the middle where the guy rips his face off, or at the beginning with the clown and the tree. It's just terrifying throughout. Yeah, so, yeah, it's it's yeah. Poltergeist is great though, but. Probably too much for a seven-year-old. No, don't say. show that's, to a seven-year-old. That, that's, we... that's too much. Just yeah, because I... we, just because our parents screwed up, doesn't mean yeah. you have to. I always love the say, Oh, I saw Poltergeist when I was seven. I turned out fine. Did you? Did you really <laughs> turn out fine? Can you imagine yourself better? <laughs> Can you imagine yourself turning out better than you did? Maybe Poltergeist yeah. had something good. I would actually be curious about this because you know, you and I, we're, we're defaulting a lot to the movies we saw when we were young, hmm. and we tried to recommend a few uh, more modern movies. I would be curious, and sometimes we put this out in letters episodes, if anyone's listening and want to recommend some more recent horror movies 
that you think would be good gateway horror movies for younger people. Not movies that are like with kids in mind, like Goosebumps. Goosebumps would also be a good idea. Yeah. The first Goosebumps movie is quite good. Um, but what's an actual horror movie? Maybe it's R-rated, maybe it's PG-13, that you think would be like suitable Hmm. For an elementary schooler to watch as their first big horror movie and would actually fit. Like, what's something that's more contemporary? Maybe it's your generation, maybe it's right after. Like, because I was thinking about, like, what's like a good, like, PG 13 horror movie? But, but that's all stuff I've only seen once. So, like, uh. my first thought was Crawl with Kaya uh, Scodelaria, which is about uh, mm. uh, there's a hurricane and a woman and her father are trapped in a house with, like, Oh, crocodiles. C R A W. I thought you were talking about K R U L. No, no, not Crawl the Fantasy Movie. That's mm. cool too. No, there's a there's a horror movie that came out a few years ago called Crawl C R A W L. Stars Kaya Scodelario and Barry Pepper, and they were trapped in a house in the middle of a hurricane uh, with a whole bunch of is it alligators that swim or is it crocodiles? I, I don't remember. One of those. And there's a whole L- bunch of large dinosaur yeah. creatures. And it's it's properly scary, and you know, some people do die in it. I don't remember it being especially gory, mm. but I remember thinking to myself, you know, this this would probably be a good PG thirteen, you know, slumber party scary movie. Actually scary, but you'll probably yeah. be fine. I think of that like kind of other thing. good Oh, you know what? A film I really liked, and this is actually my favorite mm. Eli Roth movie. Oh, but he, he did one okay. called The House with the Clock in Its that's Walls. Pretty good. And that was, was that one was okay. That's a solid that's uh, a solid yeah. kids horror movie thing i think yeah. he handled that one well and I'm, I'm trying not to recommend things that like i just have personal affection for mm-hmm. well that's uh, okay too <clears throat> i suppose world. so like you know beetlejuice is one i was sure. very beetlejuice is a, beetlejuice mm-hmm. is a hoot there's no mm-hmm. denying that i think there's anything else before we, we have to move mm-hmm. on about 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 yeah that's it's, um, there's a lot of really great ones um, yeah some of the ones i saw like when i was a kid were like they seemed kid friendly but when i rewatched them i was like High Spirits is very ribald. Oh, oh no! Do high, not drink high, high spirits, spirits is about ghosts who fuck. Like, yeah, that's, it's that's not really. A, it's not really a kids movie. I saw it as a kid. Yeah. Probably shouldn't have. Um, but anyway, we should we should probably move on. Yeah. All right. All right. Uh, another letter. Let's do one more, and then we'll All call right. it a day. Um, this is a letter from Brad. Hello, Brad. Um, Hi, Brad. Hi, gents. Long time listener, first time writer. Oh, I love to hear from you. People. Thank you. Please write in. Uh, I was pleasantly surprised to see the new movie Fremont. As part of your review schedule mm. this week. Oh, that, that was one I reviewed on uh, one of our last Critically Acclaimed episodes. Mm-hmm. I've not had a chance to see it yet. I'm trying to find find the time to do so. Although Fremont has... Oh, Fremont the City has an interesting history of film. The Niles District is considered the first Hollywood. Mm. And both Charlie Chaplin and, and Bronco Billy made movies here before the industry moved south. There you go. Uh, there haven't been too many modern movies that take place here. There's a small scene in Sneakers... The the Dumbarton Bridge is featured as one of the offices they go to is in Fremont. Nice. And a couple of scenes in Harold and Maude, again featuring the Dumbarton Bridge. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the Cyberdyne Systems building in Terminator 2 is a building in Fremont, California that still stands today. Nice. Uh, Fremont is uh, this little indie drama that I, I reviewed that takes place in Fremont, California. Yeah. Uh, there's still a silent film museum here uh, that chronicles the early days of Fremont uh, in the historic Niles district. If you ever find yourself in the area, I would suggest paying a visit. It's a really cool look into early film. To this day, the East Bay Hills, there's a Niles sign that mimics the iconic Hollywood sign. That's cool. Uh, I realize you two live in the vast sprawl of greater Los Angeles, but to call Fremont a tiny town is pretty inaccurate. Oh, Whitney, you... you I know, my gosh. Oh, you, you urbanite. I, I was raised in Los Angeles. Yeah. I went to college in Tacoma, Washington, 
and I constantly thought of it as this tiny little town. Like it's <laughs> it's a major metropolitan <laughs> area, it's Tacoma, town. Washington. It's a big yeah. city. We we happen to grow up in one of the biggest cities yeah, in the world, so, one of the so most sprawling cities. Anywhere in the world. I went, other than like Chicago or New York, was yeah. going to sound like a seem like yeah. a small town well, to me. Hong Kong, a few other places in the oh, world, uh, but like in, in America, in, in the United States, in the contiguous United States. Uh, Fremont, it's by area, it's the second largest city in the San Francisco Bay Area, nearly okay. 79 square miles. Pretty good. Uh, trailing only behind San Jose. It's the fourth largest by population behind San Jose and San Francisco and Oakland, with 235,000 residents. It's also one of the most ethically di- ethnically diverse uh, cities in the country, maybe ethically diverse as well. Uh, with over 30 languages spoken, a population that is nearly 60% Asian, made it primarily of immigrants from India, Pakistan, and Afghanistan. That's what Fremont is about. Okay. Uh, the reason the film was made here is likely because Fremont is one of the first place Afghanis came to flee the Russian invasion in the early 80s. Mm-hmm. Nearly overnight, my film school was filled with many Afghani children, so to this day, no city in North America houses more people of Afghani descent. I didn't know that. That's really mm-hmm. cool. Uh, I do agree that Fremont is a fairly nondescript city. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to back off on that. <laughs> Apologize for my other comments. Yeah. Uh, when most... he has to protect his ego in some way. It is so large and so fragile. <laughs> Mostly a bedroom community at the southern end of Silicon Valley, but it does have some interesting history, and it was really great to see my hometown featured in a film. It's even the title of the movie. Yeah. Uh, I just might uh, need to head into Little Cobble, an industry in the center of the city, uh, with Middle Eastern residents and a small theater that I believe was briefly mentioned in the book The Kite Runner hmm. and look up some kebabs for dinner. Nice. Uh, best, Brad. Thank you. That's really exciting. I love hearing stories. Uh, we've gotten quite a few lately, actually, of uh, people in like sort of their the film history of their towns and their theaters. And yeah. that's just really, really cool. And it's, you know, you, you and I, we, we live in Los Angeles. It's been called the entertainment capital of the world. I'm not even sure how true that is anymore. But it, it's it's a big place, and it's easy to think of it as the center of everything, and it's not. There's so many other wonderful places to be, to experience yeah. cinema, to go to a cool theater, to learn about history, uh, and just to live. So mm. keep bringing the stories. I want to hear more about like the yeah, film I, history of where you live, especially if it's not like one that we may have heard of, like New York. Uh, you know? What's really great is, um, I, I guess this is more true of Los Angeles, just mm. because we have so many... Los Angeles is great because it's actually a bunch of, like, little cities just sort of crammed right into each other. Yeah, what we think of as Los Angeles is really Los Angeles County. Yeah. Which yeah. is just this giant sprawl. It runs and, uh, from basically Santa Monica to Pasadena and everything from, like, the Valley to Orange County. It's quite huge, actually. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. it's a big sprawl, and there's a lot of neighborhoods in it. And you can grill somebody from Los Angeles to have a list of films that take place in like the various little tiny mm-hmm. neighborhoods within. So yeah. there's movies about Echo Park. Yeah. Um, uh, there's there's a movie called City of Industry that takes place in City mm-hmm. of Industry. I like the uh, movies that take place within walking distance of where we live, which include yeah. films like 2012 uh, and, right. uh, <laughs> and more recently The Fablements, uh, where Spielberg and his dad move. They actually show mm-hmm. the address on screen. It's, it's a half a mile from where we live. Oh, that's it's really, like really close. Um. But yeah, uh, 
I'd be interested to read a book about just sort of a, a bunch of like 50 movies that explore each neighborhood in LA. They tried to do that with Law and Order Los Angeles, if you yeah. recall. Oh, each, God, one took, so each one was supposed to take place in a different burg, and yeah. they didn't really stick with that, unfortunately. It's well, like the they, Marina Del Rey episode should have been all about the things that are in Marina Del Rey. Well, the hilarious uh, thing about Law and Order Los Angeles is they wanted to make it like about Los Angeles, but they only included tropes from New York. They, they did a New York Post headline joke. We don't have a New York Post. It's, it's, they just had to throw in a New York joke. And then they would get They would have like an LA Weekly joke or something yeah, like that. That they don't have a joke headline for it, so wouldn't they couldn't have gotten away with that? They wanted the joke, even if it didn't make sense for Los Angeles. Yeah. They refused to work from Los Angeles outward, and the few times they did try to be Los Angeles, they flunked. Yeah. The first episode, I'll never forget. Corey Stoll, you may remember his butt from Ant Man: Quantum Mania. Um, he's a good actor. I like. He's a good. Stuff. I actually like Corey. I've interviewed Corey Stoll. He seemed nice. Um, I hadn't seen Law and Order uh, Los Angeles by the time I did, or I would have grilled him about this. There's a scene in the pilot yeah, episode D- of Dick Law- Wolf was born in New York, so of course, we of did. course, there's a scene in Law and Order Los Angeles pilot episode of Memory Serves where Corey Stoll is like walking in like there's a van and they're staking something out, and he went out and he got food for people to eat because you got to eat and steak out, um, and he's very proud that he says, "Hey, I got burritos from Tito's." No one gets the burrito okay. at Tito's. I'll, I'll no say, one of consequence. <laughs> I was about to say, I like the burritos at Tito's Tacos. I stand by what I said. Tito's Tacos uh, uh, is a n- very popular gre- greasy walk-up uh, taco mm-hmm. joint. Uh, close to where we live. Pretty uh, close. It's, it's, not really walking distance, but in, very, very it's, short It's time. over on the edge of Culver City. On, yeah. uh, just not, it's practically under the freeway over mm-hmm. on, uh, on the four five, Washington yeah. Boulevard. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's it's been around forever. And they uh, sell cheap tacos, cheap and, tacos in huge boxes. Yeah, and there's usually a big old line. But what I love, one of my favorite thing about Tito's that nobody talks about, and this is so inside baseball, LA. Uh, everyone, when you go to LA, they're just like, oh, well, you got to go to Tito's, right? Mm-hmm. What people don't realize is that there is a restaurant on the same block. That's oh, the pastrami place. Yeah? No, well, no, there's Johnny's, which is actually one of the few good pastrami places in mm-hmm. LA. There aren't a lot. But uh, Johnny's in the hat, and I've never seen any other place that comes close. Maybe Big Tommy's. Um, Have you been to Langer's? It's okay. <gasps> it's Heresy. Not, it's fine. Um, <laughs> I have there you go there's my hot take for the day um, you just give me your LA card I gotta rip that thing up I'm gonna get back my LA card because I'm gonna tell you Tito's Tacos here's how you know when a restaurant is great is when it can be next door to a more popular restaurant and serve the exact same food and be there for decades <laughs> if you want good food go to the restaurant next to Tito's Cinco de Mayo tacos. Mm. Much better food. I've had Cinco de Mayo. It's really good. Well, Cinco de Mayo is great because it's 24-7. You, uh, yeah. Uh, well, usually. Is, I actually think it's, it's, according to my thing, it says it's closed right now. Oh, maybe it changed. It, it, but it's still I, open real late, though. I know, I know I went there, like, after midnight once, like, mm. on a flight home from LAX. Looks like they're so, open until yeah. midnight on Friday and Saturday, and most of the days now they're open until okay, 11. They might have changed recently, I guess. I maybe know. I went, like, at midnight, but... Mm. um. Yeah, I've, I've, I've be been there. Sure. I've been there, and yeah, they're totally good. Um, it's so good. But uh, I'm a Campos boy, man. I, I gotta. Campos is good. It's it's a it's a chain. It's a local chain. It's quite good. It's, it's quite I, good. I, Campos I mean, is the, great. Depending on which Campos you go to, and there's fewer now. A couple of them closed. Yeah, um, it's one of they're good Campos. You'll, you'll, okay you'll get you'll get a burrito like Popeyes forearm. Like that's <laughs> <laughs> <there's, there's> gigantic. <laughs> 
these these massive things. They have something called. It's, I think it's just called the Macho Burrito. And yeah. It's a, yeah, these massive things. They're really, it's quite really good. Yeah. Combos is great. I've well, been I've been eating their bean and cheese since. Oh, I was there's a kid, a, oh, so. there's this new place. I'm gonna I'm gonna there, for people in L. A. This is good. I promise you. Th- this is boring to everybody. This else. Boring to everybody else. Lo- this is there's a reason this is at the end. of Talk the, about local burrito joints. If, a, if you're in Los Angeles, though, please go yeah. to Campos Burritos. Uh, yeah. At, at any of them, the one on McLaughlin is the best. But. Hold um, on. Uh, yeah, that, to that's going to be new, some of the best Mexican fast food. Um, There's a slightly newer place on Venice, which is like my favorite place right it's now. Mexican place and yeah, on Venice Boulevard. Yeah, hold on. Burrito place in Venice. It's, Boulevard. Yeah, but it's like it's like um, it's it's in Culver City though. All right, hang on. Okay, my my, my mind is like sort of walking it's like, down. That it's street. got like a hold on. <laughs> Baja California tacos. Oh, I haven't been there. I, know, I know what you're great. talking about though. Yeah. Oh my God! Do I love Baja California tacos? Not Baja Fresh. That is a chain. It's not the worst chain in the world. There's also like only two left. I've always <laughs> no, I've always wondered about well, Baja Fresh is kind of closing, but yeah, yeah there's, there's a couple in left. when you have when you live in a place like LA, yeah, which has all all the best food, yeah. Why? How does something like Taco Bell mm-hmm. survive? Because it's open till two a.m. And you go there when you're high. You go there when you're high or and, drunk, and you want and you greasy, want, starchy and, food, and you want a you, lot of it yeah. for five bucks. And you want food that doesn't taste like food. Uh, <laughs> that's that's, yeah. that's what a lot of food is nowadays, I Whitney. Suppose so, yeah. Talk like, about talk about can, fast food joints. Fast food joints, fast. That's it. Fast and yeah, drive through. There are not a lot of the good restaurants in this area are drive throughs. I, su- I, I suppose that's the, why they're convenient. The, the, there's no drive through compost, but yeah, if there should be, you, I would go. You can, but you like, you can get better food uh-huh. for comparable prices. Yeah. here in Los Angeles, there's no reason to go to Taco Bell again in Los Angeles. Again, with that kind of chain, uh-huh. convenience, drive through, price, and also, and this is something that I don't think you can really put like a, a like a, a proper label on. Like mm-hmm. it's nostalgia, basically, but um, comfort food. Yeah. It's what you probably had before you developed good taste in food. I suppose so. it's like your first burger would might have been a McDonald's burger okay. to you. That's the that's the the, the prototypical burger, yeah. I'll, I'll and just... it tastes like childhood, and it's all you want today. And cut it's, me some yeah. fucking slack. I'm yeah. getting a burger. But I'll I'll say this to our listeners because I know they have good taste. Yes, they do. Uh, if you're not from LA yeah. and you come here, do me a favor and just stay the hell away from Taco Bell. I would. Yeah, this uh, is an going, amazing food town. I'd it's, hope you're not going anyway. But yeah, yeah there's, there's a few there's, things we stink at, but the, we're good at we, a lot of stuff. We, we think we're good at pizza. We're not. There's like um, two good pizza places in Los Angeles. What, Hollywood Pie is one of my favorites. Closed. Mm-hmm. One of the good good places is uh, La Monica's. Uh, it's a New York pizza joint. They import yeah. their water. Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, the, the, the dough room is quite good. Dough room's okay. Oh, fine. <laughs> La Mo- uh, Mozza, which is a little little bit more high end, uh, yeah. which is over on. Uh, Miller was yeah. in Highlands. That's over in Hollywood. That that yeah. has good pizzas. Like we don't we don't do pizza pizzas. good. There's a couple of the New York things we don't. We don't do bagels good. We, uh, we do bagels fine. We do well, bagels is, yeah. fine is the yeah. correct answer. There. That, that's do, as good that's as good yeah. as I'll say for LA bagels. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we used to have a couple delis. We don't anymore. They all no. closed. No, there's one left on uh, on Pico, but it's like far down. Well, there's Froman's, which is not good, and uh, like for, I don't know why so, Izzy's closed and Froman stayed open because Izzy's yeah. is a good deli, and Let we have you, Cantor's. Yeah, which is no longer twenty four seven. Yeah, I miss sub. It was. It turned into Lenny's. What was it used to be on Juniors? Uh, juniors is great. Juniors is Lenny's was an okay yeah. substitute because they kept most of the framework of of Juniors. Uh-huh. 
but God, there's just nothing there. There's just this empty building that should yeah. be a deli. It, what are you it doing? Was, it was a good deli. They had uh, a great bakery section. Oh, they're knish. <laughs> oh, God, I would kill for yeah, a spinach we, we knish had from some juniors re- right now. Really great deli yeah. delis, and those just all shut down. We, should we start a food podcast? No. <laughs> We'll just rave about our favorite joints in L.A. That's uh, what yeah. people like sometimes. I don't yeah, know. but if you want to contact us, we'll have plenty to talk about the restaurants in Los Angeles. Anyway, thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you for joining us. Uh, we, we know it's been a while since we did a We've Got Mail, so we gave you an extra long one this time. Uh, hope you enjoy it. Uh, if you want to write in, it's very easy to do. Our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. Whitney, what is your P.O. box? And remember, yeah. if you send a physical piece of mail, pretty much guaranteed to be right on the air. Yeah, uh, it's uh, the Critically Acclaimed Network, P.O. Box 641565, Los Angeles, California, 90064. Yep. Uh, we are on the social medias. We're on uh, Twitter and Blue Sky, at Critic Acclaim. And uh, I am on various social medias, at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold on all those, yeah. all those socials. Pretty much only post on uh, Twitter, which I'm doing a lot less of now, Blue Sky and Instagram. Um, but I am elsewhere as well. If you, if you have a presence, um, and of course, uh, thank you to all of our patrons over at patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. Uh, that's where we have a lot of our exclusive shows, including stuff we talked about on this episode. Only the best. We review every single film ever nominated for best picture. We just released an episode of only the best international where we talked about the best international feature winner uh, from 1953 gate of hell. Mm-hmm. Very interesting samurai movie, but we had a bit of a conversation about whether it really I, was the best film of that year. Uh, I don't think it's the best film of that year. I don't mm-hmm. think it's the best film from Japan from that year. Yeah. Uh, but uh, it's, it's, I would never encourage you to skip it. It's a, incredibly pretty film please yeah. see that movie uh, and and you can learn more about, oh hi Luca Luca wants treats so I gotta wrap this up uh, and of course we have our Star Trek podcast there and a whole bunch of other podcasts as well and you get to hear all of our new episodes ad free uh, so thank you everybody for, for helping the show if you can't afford to help the show please leave us a review wherever you can that helps a lot and um, yeah have a great week uh, eat some wonderful food go see some movies and I guess that's it that's sincerely it. yours Bibbs and Whitney that's it.